Bourbon for Breakfast, Living Outside the Status Quo, by Jeffrey Tucker, narrated by Stephen Ng, copyright 2010 by the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and published under the Creative Attribution License 3.0. This audiobook was produced by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. For more information or to discover more about the Ludwig von Mises Institute and Austrian economics, visit Mises.org. Introduction The title of this book is drawn from one of those defining moments in life when a small phrase shatters the social-cultural convention and reveals completely new possibilities. I tell the story herein in the essay on morning drinking. A great scholar and southern gentleman, a man who has written the ultimate guidebook to the writing of the King James Version of the Gospels, invited me for an early breakfast, 7 a.m., and then offered me coffee. I said, yes, thank you. He then added, would you like bourbon in that coffee? What is revealed in that sentence and the shock it elicited? We believe, for whatever reason, that drinking hard liquor in the morning is unseemly, contrary to social norms, something to hide, a habit of the lower classes that is dangerous or even evil. But are any of these assumptions true? A new form of prohibitionism has swept the country, imposed on us by our government masters and their cultural backers, even as alcohol consumption rises and rises. Evidently, we live two realities— the one the government imposes on us, and the one we adopt in our real lives. What struck me about this man's phrase was how it presumed that he and I were among the rebels against the prevailing ethos, that together we would reject the government's edicts and create our own norms in reality. This is a wonderful model for living a full life. This book is about seeing that just because government mandates certain things and forbids others does not mean that we must follow or even tolerate the official roadmap for our lives. The seed of truth to the morning drinking taboo is that doing this every morning would contribute to a less productive life. But on the weekends or when it is not necessary to be at your sober best, or when you are celebrating some special guest, there is surely nothing wrong here. In any case, there must be some lost aristocratic tradition of adding a splash, else this highly cultivated, highly educated, and scholarly southern gentleman would not have suggested it. In doing so, he was revealing some lost history with a sense of freedom and possibility. To contemplate the suggestion is to imagine a world that does not exist, one that breaks from the status quo and plays with the pluses and minuses of adopting a new way of living. Most of the essays in this book do just this. They imagine radical new possibilities of living outside the status quo, or perhaps, we should say, status quo, because it is the state that is responsible for shaping our world, in brazen ways and also subtle ones, that we do not fully realize. Examples from the book include how and why the hot water in our homes became lukewarm, and what can be done about it. How our toilets stopped working properly because of legislation that reduced toilet tank size. How traffic law enforcement became a racket for extracting wealth from the population to feed our overlords 
how copyright and patent legislation is depriving us of cultural and technological innovation, and how politicians who we think are protecting us are really just taking away our rights to protect ourselves. To see the cost of statism is to see what Friedrich Bastiat called the unseen. It is about imagining the existence of some possibility that the state has forbidden from existing, playing with that possibility in your mind, and then acting on what has previously been an abstraction and making it a reality. Art helps us accomplish this mental feat, which is why many of these essays deal with literature, movies, culture, and the arts. But seeing what is wrong with the world. Chesterton's phrase is only the beginning. Finding the solution, the workaround, is the next necessary step. I try not to highlight problems without offering a solution of sorts, simply because there is nothing productive or enlightening about despair. Hope comes from imagining a better future that does not yet exist. Most of the essays in here deal with what are often considered trivial or light topics. But the trivial is quite often very serious, while what we think is serious is often quite trivial, as I try to show. At the same time, I deal with topics that libertarians of my stripe don't often write about, like the ghastly reality of jail. Yes, the article is autobiographical, and the problems connected with intellectual property. I make no apology for the fact that the topics are all over the map. Maybe that will make this book more interesting. An underlying apparatus here is my own formation in economic theory, drawn from my many years of work at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, and the way that the friendships I've formed in this connection have gradually led me away from the poison of politics as a viable means of social and economic management. A parallel part of my life involves the study and practice of music, with a particular focus on what is called early music. Exploring the interaction between culture, broadly speaking, and political economy is something that happened inadvertently, as I've been plugging away at thousands of articles over the years, of which this book represents only a sample. We all need to be part of the project of reimagining freedom, of living outside the status quo, else we will go the way of many societies and civilizations before us. Host to a massive apparatus of power and imposition that strangles the growth and ingenuity of people, leading to a stasis that hardly anyone notices until it is too late. I would like to offer a special note of thanks to Lou Rockwell, who has encouraged the publication of this kind of econocultural analysis, and ran many of them on his website, lourockwell.com. Doug French suggested, even insisted, on collecting them in a book. Many friends, co-workers at the Mises Institute, associates, and loved ones will notice incidents, ideas, and phrases in here that draw from shared experiences and conversations. Indeed, there are many senses in which this book is not my own, but the result of a community enterprise. They should all know of my gratitude. Water and Life, Chapter One: The Bureaucrat in Your Shower. January tenth, two thousand six. The Department of Energy may soon be paying a visit to a certain showerhead manufacturer in Arizona. The company is Zoe Industries Manufacturing. 
It runs ShowerBuddy.com, a popular site that sells amazing equipment for bathrooms. Consumers love the company, but one man doesn't. He is Al Dieterman, head of conservation for the Seattle Water Board. Al ordered some products and sent them to be our labs in Huntington, California, according to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. And sure enough, bureaucrat Al gained enough data to report Zoe to the feds, accusing Zoe of blatant violations of environmental protection laws. Now the heat is on. What's the big deal? What critical matter of American public life is at stake? It's all about water flow and gallons per minute. You might have some vague memory from childhood, and perhaps it returns when visiting someone who lives in an old home. You turn on the shower, and water washes over your whole self as if you are standing under a warm spring waterfall. It is generous and therapeutic. The spray is heavy and hard, even enough to work muscle cramps out of your back, enough to wash the conditioner out of your hair, enough to leave you feeling wholly renewed, enough to get you completely clean. Somehow these days it seems nearly impossible to recreate this in your new home. You go to the hardware store to find dozens and dozens of choices of shower heads. They have three, five, seven, even nine settings, from spray to massage to rainfall. Some have long necks. Some you can hold in your hand. Some are huge, like the lid to a pot, and promise buckets of rainfall. The options seem endless. But you buy and buy, and in the end, they disappoint. It's just water, and it never seems like enough. Why? As with most things in life that fall short of their promise, the government is involved. There are local regulations. Here is one example of a government regulation on the matter, from the Santa Cruz City Water Conservation Office. If you purchased and installed a new showerhead in the last 10 years, it will be a 2.5 GPM gallons per minute model. Since all showerheads sold in California were low-consumption models beginning in 1992, you mean they regulate how much my shower sprays? Yes, indeed they do. Government believes that it has an interest in your shower? Yes, it does. And it's not just crazy California. The Federal Energy Policy Act of 1992 mandates that all faucet fixtures manufactured in the United States restrict maximum water flow at or below 2.5 gallons per minute at 80 pounds per square inch of water pressure or 2.2 GPM at 60 PSI. Or as the Department of Energy itself declares to all consumers and manufacturers, federal regulations mandate that new showerhead flow rates can't exceed more than 2.5 gallons per minute at a water pressure of 80 pounds per square inch. As with all regulations, the restrictions on how much water can pour over you at once while standing in a shower is ultimately enforced at the point of a gun. Manufacturers must adhere to these regulations under penalty of law, and to be on the safe side and adjust for high water pressure systems, they typically undershoot. If you try your shower right now, you will probably find that they dispense about 2 gallons per minute or even less. Together with other regulations concerning water pressure, your shower could fall to as low as 1.5 gallons per minute. This creates a rather serious problem for nearly everyone in the country. America is the land of the shower, 
Popular lore holds that Americans are some of the most showered people in the world, and this stands in contrast to, well, to lands of less showered, not naming any names. As for Zoe Industries, they set out to address this strange problem that has made our showers less functional than they ought to be. They are not water anarchists. We aren't talking about shower rig secessionists here, but the company did insightfully observe that the restriction applies on a per-showerhead basis. So Zoe sells full units that have three full heads per shower. What a solution, truly in the spirit of American enterprise in the best sense. These remarkable units are both brilliant and beautiful, and they comply with the letter of the law. The one that annoyed bureaucrat Al is the Nautilus II Chrome, and what a piece of work it is. If it turns out that the feds can't prove him in violation, Congress might have to go back to work. The regs might have to be changed to specify one head per shower space. But then, what can the government do about the length of showers? After all, there is no real way to regulate how much water we use and pay for. Maybe the shower heads have to have timers on them, and maybe the feds need to put up little monitors in our showers to make sure that we have stopped and started them. And what happens to shower offenders? One can see federal SWAT teams screeching up to your house, black-clad men pouring out, securing the perimeter, and shouting through a bullhorn, Drop the soap and come out of the shower with your hands up! Most manufacturers adhere to the regulations, but savvy consumers know how to get around the problem. Warning! The following section is for information purposes only. I am not advocating egregious violations of federal law as some troublemaking rebels might. Do not endanger your status as a law-abiding citizen who takes wimpy showers. Many people now hack their showers, or customize them if you prefer. You can take your shower head down, pull the washer out with a screwdriver, and remove the offending intrusion that is restricting water flow. It can be a tiny second washer, or it can be a hard plastic piece. Just pop it out and replace the washer. Sometimes it is necessary to trim it out using a penknife or even a drill. Using such strategies, you can increase your water flow from 2 gallons per minute to 3 and even 4 gallons per minute. You can easily clock this using a stopwatch and a milk carton. Using this method, just as an experiment for the sake of journalism, again, do not try this at home. I was easily able to expand my gallons per minute on each shower in my house to an average of 3.4 GPM, thereby recreating that childhood sense of gushes of water pouring down. Now, that doesn't compare to the amazing 12.7 gallons per minute that BR Labs claims they were able to clock with the Nautilus 2. Wow, wow, wow. But it still exceeds federal regulations. Why would anyone want to do this? According to the head of Zoe Industries, people somehow have the sense that I described above. Generally, they don't like the water savers, he says. The flow of water is too weak, and they feel as though they haven't gotten a shower. The whole craziness here recalls the similar frenzy about toilet tank size that resulted from the same act of Congress. 
Eventually, manufacturers figured out how to make the toilets flush, but even today, you never want to have a plunger to be too far from the toilet. Thus, it has spawned an entire industry of designer plungers. You might say that water needs to be conserved. Yes, and so does every other scarce good. The peaceful way to do this is through the price system, but because municipal water systems have created artificial shortages, other means become necessary. One regulation piles on top of another, and the next thing you know, you have shower commissars telling you what you can or cannot do in the most private spaces. Has central planning ever been more ridiculous, intrusive, and self-defeating? The U.S. Geological Survey of the U.S. government reports that all domestic water use, common indoor uses include drinking, preparing food, bathing, washing clothes and dishes, and flushing toilets. The major outdoor uses are watering lawns and gardens, constitute less than one percent of the total water use. Whether our showers spray a lot or a little makes no notable difference at all. If we want to pay slightly more to be clean and happy. We are so entitled. If Zoe Industries is bankrupted by federal fines, who will stand up for our right to take showers our own way and make our own judgments about how much water to use? Chapter Two, The Turn of the Screw, February twentieth, two thousand four. You may have had some sense lately that something is just not right in your domestic life, not calamitously bad, but just bad enough to be annoying on a daily basis and in seemingly unpredictable ways. You are not alone. In fact, a huge variety of personal and social problems trace to a single source. First, an inventory to establish what I mean. You have the vague sense that your bed linens are not so much comforting you as hemming you in, restricting you, and just not breathing as they should. To clean your bathtub and kitchen sink requires an inordinate amount of cleanser and bleach, whereas you remember showers that once refreshed you, they now leave you only feeling wet. It should be a pleasure to put on a bright white crisp undershirt. But instead, it seems rather routine, dull, even uneventful. The mop has a dusky smell of an old rag, and you keep having to replace it to get rid of the reappearing and never disappearing stink. Your dinner tonight reminds you of your dinner last night, and that night before, and the flavors seem to be piling up into one big haze. These are just six of the many dozens of typical symptoms of one of the most common household problems in America today. What is that problem? The simplicity of the answer might shock you. Your water heater is set at too low a temperature. Most people don't want to think about their water heaters. It is a subject we would rather avoid. It just sort of sits there like a steel totem pole in a dusty closet that is otherwise not used for much, because there is not room for much else. The heater itself seems intimidating, plastered with strange insulating devices and warning stickers. It is something to be touched only by specialists. We even fear cleaning behind it, worrying that we will be zapped or scorched. Sure. 
We know people have had to replace their water heaters because their water heater went out. But because this has never happened to us, we don't worry about it. Besides, what if it turns out that the water heater has some sort of scary blue flame and a clicking starter or something? Better to leave it alone so that it doesn't become volcanic. All of these impulses are wrong. The water heater can be your friend. It can be your greatest friend in your struggle to create and maintain a happy domestic environment. It wants to be useful. There is nothing to be frightened of. There are no blue flames. They are mostly electric now. A water heater is made to heat and hold water. It is begging you to do something that will change your life from gray to bright white. Turn up the temperature. Chances are that your water temperature is set at 120 degrees. This is the preferred temperature of the establishment. Water heaters are shipped this way and installed this way. The regulations on new home construction mandate it to be this way. Who thinks to change it? But 120 degrees? Come on! By the time the water leaves the heater and travels through the pipes and hits the air before landing whenever it is supposed to land, chances are that it will fall to 118 degrees. In the dead of winter, with pipes running under the house, it can be even lower. Think about this. 118 degrees is the temperature at which yeast thrives. It is the temperature for proofing. What does that tell you? It tells you that things can grow at 118 degrees. In other words, this is too cool. To know what 118 degrees feels like, imagine a bowl of water that you stick your hand in. It is warm, even quite warm, but you don't really have the drive to pull your hand out to keep yourself safe. You can adjust. You know what? Everything adjusts to 118 degrees. Germs, viruses, bacteria, dirt, smudge, sludge, stink, dust, and every other damnable thing in the world. All of this lives, even thrives, at 118 degrees. Revelation 3.16 has it right. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Who came up with the idea that the standard temperature should be 120 degrees? The usual bunch. Governments that want to impose a variety of deprivations on you. Anti-energy people who think the less technological consumption, the better. Environmentalists who want to stamp out all things bright and beautiful. Litigious lawyers who have intimidated heater makers. And safety freaks of all sorts. A quick search shows all. We know these people. They are the people who say we should eat our own garbage, invite bats to live in our attics, and refrain from killing mosquitoes in the marsh. They are the ones who gave us toilets that don't flush and shower heads that don't spray. They seem to think we should all go around dirty and dissatisfied and that anything resembling clean, neat, and, well, civilized has to be stamped out. These people are always worrying about the risks of life. But what about the health risks of living in the squalor of their creation? Defy them all in one fell swoop. Turn your temperature up to 130 degrees. 
How hot is this? Contrary to claims, it will not scald you. Imagine again a bowl full of water. Put your hand into this temperature and you will say yikes or ouch or yow and pull it right out and shake your hand in the air. However, it leaves nothing red, no burns, nothing awful. It is just what used to be called hot water before the lukewarm crowd changed everything. How does yeast respond to 130 degrees? It dies. Bread bakers know this. You know what else dies? All the icky things mentioned above. They all die a mercifully quick deaths at this temperature. Clean clothes, clean sinks, satisfyingly hot showers, comfortable sheets, clean-smelling mops, plates that come out of the dishwasher without dinner buildup on them. All of this awaits your act of defiance. A brief note on shoes. Have you ever bought a new pair of shoes because your old ones stank? Of course they did. Your socks are not getting clean. They infect your shoes. Oh, sure, try to keep it at bay with Dr. Scholl's. It won't work. A shoe stink sticks forever. You thought you had a physical disability and embarrassing foot odor problem. Nope. It's your hot water heater. How to fix all this? It will take less than a minute. If your temperature dial is in the open, good for you. Turn it to 130 degrees or higher. There is a reason these tanks go up to 170 degrees. I read a manual for a dishwasher that said it wants water at 145 degrees. When I was in the dishwashing business, you had to use heavy rubber gloves just to get near water. So be it. If your dial is covered, ignore all stickers and scary warnings about scalded babies. Take off the steel plate that covers up the setting. Remove the styrofoam. There you will find a tiny little dial. Use a dime or a screwdriver and give the dial a teeny tiny little turn over to 130 degrees. The benefits will start within hours. Within a day, you will experience the greatest increase in your standard of living since your gas grill and automatic sprinkler system. Your new life begins with a comfortable and happy sleep, a blasting hot and refreshing shower, a crisp t-shirt and clean socks, followed by breakfast on a plate so clean it squeaks. Even cleaning up breakfast will be pure pleasure. The sink gleams, the floor has never been cleaner, and your mop will end up as fresh as the day you bought it. Indeed, with a water heater set at 130 degrees, all is right with the world. At least that part of it you can control. Even if the whole world is conspiring against civilization, you can preserve your part of it with the smallest turn of a screwdriver. Chapter 3. Rain, Rain, Go Away. February 26, 2008. Once again, for the umpteenth time this month, I arrive at work soaking wet. Just getting from the car to the front door of the Mises Institute is like going through the rinse cycle, and umbrellas just aren't my thing. What's striking is how this weather pattern follows a year of dire warnings from government officials about the deadly drought that is destroying the region, as you can easily see from the government's own U.S. drought assessment maps. 
Actually, these are interesting maps. They give the impression that the whole of the nation is a parched land that vacillates between persistent drought and improving droughts. Nowhere is listed as soaked or just the right amount of rain. And if you reflect on government announcements of these things, all places seem to fall into one of three categories catastrophic flooding, catastrophic drought, or forgettable. Some years ago, the head of the local bureaucracy in charge of the distribution of water was quoted in the newspaper along these lines If these conditions persist, rationing will certainly become necessary. If these conditions persist? That's quite an assumption. We could say during the next rainfall, if these conditions persist, it will become necessary for everyone to build an ark. Conditions never persist, they change. Bureaucrats really hate that. One suspects that these same people love droughts. Droughts give them power, not just over the aggregate use of water. They enjoy pressing people on the smallest details of life. They get to tell you that you must take short showers. They tell you you must flush less. They impose a profound sense of guilt on you for watering the basil growing in your window box. Droughts can turn the most innocent public employee into the moral equivalent of a Gestapo agent, issuing dictates and imposing fines, ferreting out the water thieves, all in the name of the public interest. Droughts turn neighbor against neighbor. And force the whole of everyone into the criminal class, reduced to sneaking around at night to water tomato plants. Droughts make everyone feel dependent on the state. We must read their rules, such as even number houses may water their lawns from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., Monday, Thursday, and Sunday. So, rain, rain, go away. That's their theme. Bureaucrat International has a common feature loathing of. Consumerism. Whereas people want to have choice over how they spend their money, bureaucrats want us to suffer constantly and be intensely aware of what we use, not trusting the price system to determine our consumption patterns, but rather obeying regulations and strictures. Note that no drought ever officially ends. The papers are packed with warnings of impending doom during the worst of it. But when the torrents of rain come, and they invariably do eventually, there is no press release that says something along the lines of, Praise be to God, the drought is over. Use as much water as you're willing to pay for. Never, 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 they never say this. They would rather we carry with us some sense that the drought is never really over, since, after all, it could come again. The core of the problem here has nothing to do with rain and changing weather patterns. The weather has, in fact, been changing since the dawn of time. What creates the problem is public ownership of the means of production and the utterly irrational system under which the price doesn't change regardless of availability. There is no real profitability here, nor are there losses. So there is no economic calculation going on. Prices are determined by extra market indicators. Think of the difference with the market system. Every day we are enticed to consume every product you can imagine cars, celery, computers, anything. There is a constant calibrating of supply and demand. 
If anyone attempts to overprice a product and make profits, another entrepreneur sweeps in to offer the same for less and draw profits away. Innovation is everywhere, so that suppliers are required to adopt the latest thing in order to stay afloat. No profits are permanent; they are always and everywhere threatened. These days, this happens almost overnight. Now think of the difference with public water markets, in which the theme is always "you are using too much." Interesting, isn't it? Why is this? It's because the market is not being allowed to work. This has nothing to do with the product in question. If you doubt it, make a visit to your local grocery and the bottled water section in particular. There are vast numbers of choices, with each supplier begging you to consume. But in public water markets, they demand that you conserve. State ownership and management of the means of production are the key reason. Privatize, completely privatize the supply of water, and a change would emerge overnight. People immediately respond that this is a crazy idea. Streams, lakes, reservoirs, and water towers can't be owned privately. But is that really so? There are many cases of partial privatization on record, though the mandates are extreme. No doubt that there are efficiency gains that come with contracting out in privatized but regulated markets. The best solution is the same one that applies to all areas of life that are considered public goods, from trash collection and disposal to schools and defense. The government should get out of the business entirely. Talk about opposition! Labor unions go bonkers when presented with the idea. Bureaucrats do too. Even religious groups have gotten in on the act. See, for example, the growing movement of nuns against bottled water. Presbyterians for restoring creation are circulating pledges for people to sign that forswear drinking bottled water. These people claim that we shouldn't have to pay for what should be a free gift from God. But oddly, these same people don't seem to have a problem with people's paying of the government's water bill. Look, it's not complicated. Drought is another name for shortage. Government is capable of creating a shortage in any good through bureaucratic management. Prices do not respond to supply and demand, and lack of innovation characterizes production. We see this in schooling, mails, defense, courts, and every other area in which the government enjoys a monopoly. It shouldn't surprise us that the same is true in water provision. Instead of blaming Mother Nature and the consumer, the water commissioner should look closer to home to see why everyone is required to live in fear and is reduced to doing rain dances to keep the water gods happy. Chapter four: The Relentless Misery of One Point Six Gallons, January fifth, twenty ten. My order at my favorite Chinese takeout was taking too long. I stopped into the men's room. There I witnessed a common scene, the modern toilet disaster. An otherwise clean business had a restroom calamity on its hands, one so grim that I hesitate to describe it. The conjectural history is not difficult to reconstruct. The toilet apparently had trouble flushing. There was a plunger by the toilet, of course, as we see everywhere today. The toilet was plunged to get rid of the obstruction, while the obstruction itself spilled all over the floor and stuck to the plunger too. The customer probably left the ghastly scene in a rush. 
Management knew nothing. But now customers were coming and going into this bathroom, surely losing all inspiration to eat or order food. It would be easy to blame the restaurant owners. What is with these people and why can't they at least have a clean restroom? But reacting this way would be unjust. The hidden hand behind this unsanitary calamity is the U.S. government. The true origin of the mess was not in the hour before I arrived, but back in 1994, after Congress passed the Energy Policy Act, passed in 1992. This act, passed during an environmentalist hysteria, mandated that all toilets sold in the United States use no more than 1.6 gallons of water per flush. This was a devastating setback in the progress of civilization. The conventional toilet in the U.S. ranges from 3.5 gallons to 5 gallons. The new law was enforced with fines and imprisonment. For years, there was a vibrant black market for Canadian toilet tanks and a profitable smuggling operation in effect. This seems either to have subsided or to have gone so far underground that it doesn't make the news. I've searched the web in vain for evidence of any 3.5 or 5-gallon toilet tanks for sale through normal channels. I wonder what one of these fetches in the black market. This possible source has no prices and an uncertain locale. The toilet manufacturers, meanwhile, are all touting their latest patented innovations as a reason for the reduced hysteria surrounding the toilet disaster. I suspect something different. We have all gotten used to a reduced standard of living, just as people living in the Soviet Union became accustomed to cold apartments, long bread lines, and poor dental care. There is nothing about our standard of living that is intrinsic to our sense of how things ought to be. Let enough time pass and people forget things. So let us remember way back when toilets did not need plungers next to them. And thank goodness, used plungers are nasty, disease-carrying, and filthy. It doesn't matter how cute the manufacturer tries to make them or in how many colors you can buy them. In the old days, you would never have one exposed for guests. It was kept out in the garage for the rare occasion when someone threw a ham or something stranger down the toilet. Toilet paper was super thick and getting thicker. None of this one-ply nonsense. You never had any doubt about the capacity of the toilet to flush completely, with only one pull of the handle. The toilet stayed clean thanks to five gallons of rushing water pouring through it after each flush. These were great cultural and civilizational achievements. In a state of nature, the problem of human waste and what to do about it is persistent. Do the wrong thing, and you spread disease and misery. Indoor plumbing since the time of the ancient world has been a sign of prosperity and human well-being. Indoor toilets that flow into a sewer have been around since 1500 B.C., but every new settlement of people in a new area presents the problem anew. In rural America, indoor toilets weren't common until the 1930s. That today everyone assumes them to be part of life is a testament to the creative power of economic progress. What we have in these regulations passed since the 1990s is therefore a step backward from a central aspiration of mankind to dispose of human waste in the best possible way. We have here an instance of government having forced society into a lower stage of existence.
Government has reduced us as people to the point that we either have to enter the black market to get good sewage, or come to terms with living amidst periodic spreading of human waste all over our domestic and commercial environment. Again, this is wholly unnecessary. Capitalism achieves something spectacular in waste disposal. Government came along and took it away from us. That's the story in a nutshell. Today, every toilet company touts its latest innovations to overcome the problem. There are high-pressure blasters that run off electricity, designed to force a paltry 1.6 gallons of water through fast enough to make the difference. They are shockingly loud and scary. There are new shapes of tanks and new flow mechanisms that are said to compensate for the calamity, but this works only some of the time. Each of these innovations is patented, meaning that a successful project cannot be copied and improved by other companies. So even if these are improvements, their distribution is limited, and the successful aspects of them are not extended by others for fear of patent lawsuits. The entire market is hobbled. The result is an entire society of poorly working toilets in the life of adjustment to the omnipresence of human feces. All in a short fifteen years. Thanks so much, Congress. Of course, the environmentalists are in on the whole project. They started telling us back in the 1970s that our large tanks were sheer waste. We should put bricks in them to save and conserve. If you didn't have a brick in your toilet, you were considered irresponsible and a social misfit. Eventually, of course, the brick became, in effect, a mandate. And finally, toilet tanks were reduced to one third of their previous size. Back then, it was just assumed that toilet manufacturers cared nothing at all about wasting water. Surely, there was no rationale at all for why they consumed five gallons per flush as opposed to one point six gallons. This is just capitalist excess, and down with it. Well, think again. There was wisdom in those old designs. The environmentalists didn't account for the present reality in which people typically flush twice, three times, or even four times during a single toilet event. Whether this ends up using more or less in the long run is entirely an empirical question. But let us just suppose that the new micro tanks do indeed save water. In the same way, letting people die of infections conserves antibiotics. Not brushing teeth conserves toothpaste, and not using anesthesia during surgery conserves needles and syringes. Here is the truth that environmentalists do not face: sometimes conserving is not a good idea. There are some life activities that cry out for the expenditure of resources, even in the most generous possible way. I would count waste disposal as one of those. It is also possible that some people just like to get their kicks out of spreading misery and making it impossible for us to enjoy a clean and prosperous life. Like Puritans of old, they see virtue and suffering and would like to see ever more of it. It sounds perverse, but such an ethos does exist, and clearly, government doesn't care in the slightest. There are many tragedies associated with the toilet calamity. There are private embarrassments at guesthouses and disgust at every turn. 
Many of the customers at that Chinese takeout probably blame the owners, who themselves are probably mystified as to why toilets in communist China probably work just fine, but in capitalist America are throwing filth all over their restaurant. It's the hidden hand of government that has mandated this leap back to barbarism. Chapter Five, the Great Drain Debacle, September twenty-sixth, two thousand six. Chapter Five, the Great Drain Debacle, September twenty-sixth, two thousand six. In Purgatory, there probably aren't any garbage disposals. People there will have to scrape all food remains into the trash, and if so much as an onion bit gets into the drain, it will have to be carefully fished out before the water is turned on, lest the drain clog. And also, it will be as in many cities on the east and west coasts, the garbage will have to be separated into plastic, glass cans, and food muck, so there will be no peace after dinner. No shoving all leftovers down a hole in the sink and flipping the switch to grind it up. No, we will have to think really hard about all our trash. Let bottles soak to remove labels. Put foil from the potato in a separate bag from the potato itself. But so long as we are on Earth, the garbage disposal and the unified trash system seem perks of life itself. For years, I've reveled in it. They still don't have them in Europe, where things seem to have regressed since the Middle Ages, when sewage systems became more common. Nowadays, the Euro people commonly toss their trash into their own yards and try to cover up for this primitive reality by calling it composting. If you were a New Yorker before 1997, you were guilty of a crime if you used a garbage disposal, but the state finally relented and granted the freedom to grind. When my last garbage disposal wore out, the search for a replacement was a joy. You can get a normal household disposal with half horsepower, or you can step it up with a three-quarter horsepower engine, or you could dare to step into the future with extreme disposals with one-horsepower engines, capable of grinding up a whole pineapple or a sack of potatoes or a set of glass tumblers you were tired of. And so, of course, there was no choice for me. With my new unit, there was nothing that wouldn't go down. That crab leg dinner left piles and piles of orange crustaceans on plates, but in they went. Thanksgiving turkey remains. In goes the corpse. My double batch of muffins overcooked, but no problem. Down the grinding machine go twenty-four muffins, chickens, pork chop bones, and even the much dreaded banana peel. It all worked so well. Where's the downside? I couldn't see any. The next step, of course, is grease. Everyone knows, or so we are told, never ever put grease down the drain. But hey, this is the modern age. Why take household appliance advice from people who are still living in the fifties? So it started with bacon grease. Zoom. Then I pushed the envelope further and further. In the most outrageous act of disposal extremism ever, I dumped a full gallon of hot grease straight into the sink, and watched with pride as it slid lazily and effortlessly down. Again, where's the downside? For a time, it seemed that I could get away with these sink sins forever. 
Then one day I noticed a certain bogginess. The disposal side didn't seem quite as robust. Water would back up sometimes before flowing out again. Then one day, and now it seemed inevitable, it stopped. A bit of plunging pushed it right through again, and I figured that all was well. But then the plunging became more frequent. I must have slipped into some state of denial as my plunging became weekly, then daily, and then several times daily. I had to have the plunger very nearby if I was to work in the kitchen at all. My conscience was telling me the truth. All my abuse of the system was finally catching up to me. But I ignored that quiet inner voice and figured I could live this way. I was living an illusion. My dream of grinding a mountain of trash came to an end. Finally, one day, I gave in and called a plumber. He came and went, announcing that all was well. Fine, I thought. Back to my old ways. But, of course, all was not well. Then it finally happened this past weekend, a stoppage that would not be broken. As if to confirm the persistence of natural law, it began following another bacon grease dump. The water wouldn't move. I plunged and plunged until my back muscles were sore. Sometimes, if I put the plunger in the wrong spot, water would splash up and I would taste the muck. That combination of old garbage with the overriding smell of bacon, a, a tepid and thick gray-brown oily muck. The more it splashed in my face, the more I didn't care. The muck soared high in the air, dropping on countertops far and wide, landing in my hair, soaking my clothes. Sweat mixed with the bacon muck and dripped all over my face. Blisters began to appear on my hands. But the pain was not an issue. I had to beat this clog. No progress. It was time to break out the chemicals. Liquid plumber gel, baking soda, lye, boiling water, vinegar, anything. Nothing worked. Should I call a plumber? Heck, I thought, what does a plumber have but the right tools? So it was off to Walmart to acquire them myself. And I ended up with a dazzling little addition to my do-it-yourself toolkit. A 15-foot drain snake. This would surely do it. I put the snake down, a free passage for 15 feet until I reached the end. No blockage. But still, the sink did not drain. Despair set in. I imagined the crews from the city arriving the next day, with city officials and even the city planner. They would have to dig up my yard with huge tractors. The sidewalks would be ripped up. Specialists would have to be brought in to assess the damage I had caused. There are probably 15 different agencies that oversee the water supply, and they would all be allied against me. I would be sitting there in my kitchen alone, vulnerable, guilty. And they would be writing citations, wagging their fingers at me, fining me, maybe even hauling me off to jail for failing to abide by sink regulations. My neighbors will hate me. My life will fall apart. I would sit in prison and rethink my life. This is the price I would pay for ignoring my conscience. Another day passed. Another day of tepid sink muck. And then 
something struck me. The left side of the sink works fine. Only the garbage disposal side is stuck. But both the garbage disposal and the other sink flow down the same tube. So how does this make any sense? And I've already snaked out the garbage disposal. So that can't be it. Then, finally, a revelation. There are two tubes coming from the disposal unit. One goes to the main drainage and one goes to the dishwasher. I had snaked out the wrong one. But then another problem arose. I could not get the snake down the right one because the entry point was hidden beneath the choppers on the disposal unit. How will I get in? At long last, I opened the counter door. The pipes were plastic PVC. They all fit together nicely with large bolts that can be twisted by hand. I twisted the one that led from the disposal to the main pipe and gently moved it to the side. And there was the offending glob. It was just sticking there, sort of lifelike. With a fork, I removed it. It was an accumulation of six months of grinding. But tangled up at the very front of the glob was the most marvelous thing. It was a big piece of green plastic. Something shaped sort of like a washer. It could have been from anything. No one has ever seen it before. It might have been there for years. It had evidently fallen down the sink, managed to slip through the grinding, and then rammed into the pipes where it stayed lodged and began to accumulate muck. It might have been there for many years, for all I knew. Once having removed this, I screwed the pipe back together, and voila, everything worked perfectly again. Better than ever. Three days of hell were over, after an operation that took maybe ninety seconds. Unbelievable. But here is the real triumph. This little green plastic thing had expiated my sins. It turned out that none of my supposedly bad habits had done anything to clog my disposal. In fact, to the extent that some of those bones and grease finally caused a choking, that was a good thing because it led me to the fundamental source of the problem. I was guilt-free. I could again walk with an upright heart. Every civic culture in human history has attempted to distort our moral sense. They want us to believe that right and wrong consist in obeying social and civic priorities. But there is no moral norm involved in such issues as whether we own disposal units or what we put in them. Those are merely issues of technology that change with the times. Our only restriction is not to impose on others person or property. Morals do not come from the state and society. Morality deals with weightier matters that measure our thoughts, words, and deeds against universals that are true regardless of time and place. And in this time, in this place, we can grind our garbage to our heart's content. Chapter 6 Crush the Sprinkler Guild May 9, 2006 I suspected as much. What the lady at the Home Depot called the Sprinkler Repair Cult is an emerging guild seeking privileges and regulations from the government. That means a supply restriction, high prices, or another do-it-yourself project. But there is a way around it. 
I first began to smell a rat when the automatic irrigation system on my front yard needed work, but I had unusual struggles in trying to find a repair guy. The first place I called informed me they could accept no more clients. Clients? I just wanted a new sprinkler thing, for goodness sake. I don't want to be a client. I want to be a customer. Is there no one who can put on a new sprayer or stick a screwdriver in there or whatever it needs? Nope, all full. The next call was not returned. The next call ended with the person on the line fearfully saying that they do landscaping but will have nothing to do with sprinklers or automated irrigation systems. Um, okay. The next call seemed more promising. The secretary said they had an opening on the schedule in three weeks. Three weeks? In that period of time, my yard would be the color of a brown paper bag. The next call failed, and the next one, and the next. Finally, I was back to the off-putting secretary. I made the appointment, but the guy never came. Fortunately, in the meantime, a good rain came and then at regular intervals for the whole season, and I was spared having to deal with this strangely maddening situation. Why all the fuss? We aren't talking brain surgery here. These are sprinklers, little spray nozzles connected to tubes connected to a water supply. Why was everyone so touchy about the subject? Why did all the power seem to be in their hands and none in mine? Must I crawl and beg? Above all, I wonder why, with most all lawns and new subdivisions sporting these little things, why, oh why, are the people who repair them in such short supply? Little did I know that I had stumbled on to the real existence of a most peculiar thing in our otherwise highly competitive economy, a guild. It had all the earmarks. If you want your nails buffed, there are thousands of people in town who stand ready. If you want someone to make you dinner, you can take your pick among thousands of restaurants. If you want to buy a beer, you can barely go a block without bumping into a merchant who is glad to sell you one. None of that is true with sprinkler repair. What does a guild do? It attempts to restrict service. And why? To keep the price as high as possible. And how? by admitting only specialists, or supposed specialists, to the ranks of service providers, usually through the creation of some strange but largely artificial system of exams or payments or whatever. Guilds don't last in a free market. No one can blame producers for trying to put it off, but they must always deal with defectors. Even the prospect of defectors can cause people who might not otherwise defect to turn and attempt to beat others to the punch. There is just no keeping a producer clique together for long when profits are at stake. There is also the problem that temporarily successful guilds face. High profits attract new entrants into the field. They must either join the guild or go their own way. This creates an economically unviable situation in a market setting that is always driving toward a market-clearing rate of return. Further evidence of the existence of a sprinkler guild came from the checkout lady at the Home Depot. I was buying a sprinkler head, and she said in passing that they didn't used to carry these things, that the decision of the manufacturer to supply them in retail got some people mighty upset. 
she spoke of the sprinkler repair people as a cult that should be smashed. Now, does this guild really exist, or is it an informal arrangement among a handful of local suppliers? As best I can tell, here's the guild's website, www.irrigation.org slash default.aspx. The Irrigation Association is active in providing a voice for the industry on public policy issues related to standards, conservation, and water use on local, national, and international levels, acting as a source of technical and public policy information within the industry, raising awareness of the benefits of professional irrigation services, offering professional training and certification, Uniting irrigation professionals, including irrigation equipment manufacturers, distributors, and dealers, irrigation system designers, contractors, educators, researchers, and technicians from the public and private sectors. Catch that? Certification, unity, standards, public policy. These are all dangerous words that come down to the same result. High prices and bad service. Why should anyone become certified? Prestige and credibility among peers and customers, professional advancement opportunities, enhances the professional image of the industry, your industry. I thought I needed a sprinkler repairman, but these people want me to hire a certified landscape irrigation manager, a CLIM. How do you become a CLIM? Well, you have to send in $400 plus a resume that includes an overview summary of how you plan to meet program criteria. Two examples of project development to include system design objective, system budget estimate, water source development, system design drawings, hydraulic, electrical, detailed drawings, pump station, project specifications, general specification, installation specification, material specification, pump station. Two system audits or evaluations to include audit, system performance, uniformity, base schedule, recommendations for improvement, evaluation, system performance, uniformity, hydraulic analysis, electrical analysis, grounding, water source, product performance, Recommendations for improvement. Two construction and or construction management projects. Site visit reports. Drawing of record. Final irrigation schedule. Punch lists. Of course, they are working with government, federal, state, and local. They want restrictions of every sort. They want their own turf and landscape irrigation, best management practices, or BMP, to be the law of the land. You can read more about this here. How hip-deep are these people in government? It's hard to say, uh, but I'm guessing that local developers, landscapers, builders, and others are intimidated by all these and are reluctant to challenge their monopoly. So thank goodness for hardware stores. They are working to bust up these vicious little guilds to the benefit of the consumer and everyone else. It means having to stick your fingers in mud and read instruction manuals and the like, but sometimes the defense of liberty requires that you get your hands a little dirty. Chapter 7. The Key to a Happy Life April seventeenth, two 2003 Ah, spring. 
the time when the landscape appears as if it were painted by a great artist, when the birds make music of symphonic quality, and when the very air we breathe feels air-conditioned. That last point is particularly important because it is only true so long as we are outside. If we are inside, it is a different matter altogether. Most of the year, indoor air is fabulously fresh, clean, and circulating at the right temperature, thanks to the greatest source for clean, wonderful air—not the Clean Air Act, but central air conditioning and heating. When people say, "Hey, turn on the air," it is literally true. We hardly open windows anymore, which, not being Mister Outdoors, I think is fine in principle. But in the spring, the air goes off. It is no longer cold enough for heat, but not yet warm enough for air conditioning. The thermostat tells the machine to stay put. You could turn on just the blowers, but who thinks of doing that? So the air just sort of sits there, dormant and still. It is the right temperature, but it is not moving. You might not notice this at first, but once you focus on it, you suddenly realize. I'm suffocating. This is precisely the revelation that hit me two nights ago. For two weeks, nights had been oddly miserable. It wasn't too hot or too cold, just oddly and unidentifiably uncomfortable. I would wake somehow unrested. Am I sick? Am I getting old? Finally, it hit me. The only circulation in this room comes from human breath. This room needs a fan running. On it came, and with it, life itself. The night was suddenly glorious, clean, and happy. All dreams were dreamy. I awoke, and there was once again music in the air, the feel of flowers, the sound of birds. Metaphorically, of course, the fan has brought the spring indoors. Then I began to notice something. This problem isn't limited to the bedroom; it afflicts virtually all indoor space. In the spring, with neither heater nor air conditioner, indoor air begins to sink into a stultifying blechiness. If you are sitting in the same spot, you are breathing the same air again and again. My office needs a fan too. I turn it on to the same effect. The flowers appear, the birds sang, the air moved. Suddenly, my day has become as glorious as my night, filled with rapturous spring-like freshness. The fan, God bless it. At this point, in a superficially trivial essay such as this, one is supposed to plunge into history and reveal all the details that one knows about the history of the fan, so that the reader won't walk away thinking. I can't believe this guy thinks that his personal fan experience is worthy of an article. Or I could plunge into the economics of the fan. How it is the system of free enterprise that gives us such choices: ceiling fans, stand-up fans, desk fans, clip-on fans, handheld fans, and more. Hence, the system of delivery must be guarded against all encroachment by the state. But thanks to the fan running in my office, I feel no burden to defer to any model of writing that is so tediously conventional. In any case. The economic point is obvious enough that fans are available everywhere. For the history, it turns out that this isn't necessary.
The history of the fan is already well documented at the website of the Fan Museum in London, www.fan-museum.org/history.htm. Of course, the history on this site, a bit pompous, deals with the inferior and primitive handheld fan. For the serious stuff that we use in real life, you have to go to the site of the Fan Collectors Association, www.fancollectors.org, in Andover, Kansas, which is appropriately hip to the magnificence of the electric fan. This site has an amazing array of pictures of its fans. You can also participate in the fan forum. You can attend an event, which the site says is a great way to meet new friends, share fan stories, and buy, sell, and trade fans. Maybe so. What I do know is that the fan is the key to a happy sleep. It is the key to a happy, productive day. And because nights and days make up the whole of life, the fan is the key to a happy life. For a mere nine to twenty dollars. You can bring the spring indoors without the bugs or pollen or other natural menaces. Buy a fan and live a full life. Chapter eight: Municipalized trash. It's uncivilized. September fourteenth, two thousand nine. Driving into work today, I saw garbage bins overflowing and city dumpsters spilling out with trash. It stinks. It's disgusting. It's uncivilized. It's probably dangerous to some extent. It's a holiday, so of course the government workers charged with picking up this nasty refuse can't work, even though construction workers and private firms are busy bees taking advantage of the extra time. It's true with house trash too. Pickup is once per week. On schedule, and there is nothing you can do to make it more frequent. It's part of the master plan, don't you know? And if you make more trash than the once per week pickup can contain, that's your problem, not the city's. The very fear that people have about private trash collection—that trash will pile up and no one will do anything about it—turns out to be a regular feature of government trash collection. But we look the other way. Why? Before getting to this, let us first establish that garbage is a serious issue. William F. Buckley, his head full of schemes for threatening populations with nuclear annihilation, once chided libertarians for bothering with such petty concerns as trash collection. It is only because of the conservatives' disposition to sacrifice in order to withstand the enemy. Wrote Buckley in 1961 that libertarians are able to enjoy their monasticism and pursue their busy little seminars on whether or not to demunicipalize the garbage collectors. Ah, yes, little seminars, seminars about such things as avoiding the plague. Humanity has some experience with the results of failing to dispose of trash properly, and that experience was deadly. Plague swept the ancient world every fifty years or so, spread mainly through the lack of good sanitation. The Black Death in Europe might have been avoided with better sanitation and a decent system for disposing of trash, rather than letting it pile up in the streets. History's fight with the plague in the developed world came to an end at the time of the rise of capitalism in the late Middle Ages, and no surprise there. 
With the accumulation of capital came innovation and trash disposal. Since living in sanitary conditions and staying alive turns out to be something of a priority for people. This is why the largest advances in garbage collection came about during the Industrial Revolution. And yet, here we are in 2009, with trash piled up on the streets and stinking to high heaven, bags full of raw animal parts, chickens, pigs, cows, fish, baby diapers stuffed with waste, rotting eggs mixed with sour cream dip from game day parties, piles that are right now being scavenged by roaches and rats. This in a town that prides itself on its tidiness. And we put up with this for the same reason that we put up with lost mail, potholes in the road, dilapidated schools, depreciated money, and a clogged court system, because these services are monopolized by the government. Now, you can make all the public goods arguments you want about roads and courts, but trash disposal is not rocket science and could easily be handled by the market. Everyone wants trash removed, and the sooner the better. That means there is a market demand for the service. There is money to be made. The only way to keep something like this at bay is to make it illegal. If markets were in charge, trash pickup would surely be more than once per week. We wouldn't have to drag our trash bins out to the curb. In fact, we would be faced with several or many options for trash pickup. If we made more trash than we should, we wouldn't get angry notes from the city government. The private pickup companies would be thrilled. We might be paying by frequency or pickup or perhaps by the pound. That would be for the market to decide. In fact, trash pickup services might actually be characterized by, perish the thought, innovation. Just as they were in the early part of the 20th century when trash pickup was mostly private. Our houses might be directly connected to underground trash transmission services that would whisk it all away in an instant. Our kitchens might have highly effective trash chutes that would zap away trash as we made it. But because of this ghastly tradition of municipalizing trash pickup, or we might call it Sovietizing, the entire industry is stuck in the past, utterly impervious to improvement and modernization. We get our news through fiber optics, walk around with tiny wireless phones that can instantly connect with anyone, anywhere, and shop digitally with any vendor in the world. But when it comes to trash, we are still relying on once-per-week, strictly scheduled pickups by tax-funded workers driving monstrous old-model trucks. In my town, even the trash cans are paid for and owned by the government. As if the private sector is yet to figure out on its own initiative how to make a tub for holding things. So why does this system persist? I asked a few people about this, and the answer usually came down to some system of graft. Powerful people make the trucks, manage the landfills, and dole out the contracts. Perhaps so, but why do we put up with it? It seems like a preposterously unobjectionable plan. Open the system to private ownership and competition, and thereby innovation. I don't mean just contracting out. I mean abolishing city trash pickup and letting private enterprise completely take over. 
there is just no way that the existing muck would persist, for it offends every aesthetic sensibility and it may pose a ghastly health risk. As for the old conservative claim that libertarians are insufficiently worried about the Soviet threat and too worried about garbage collection, note that the Soviet Union is gone, and the garbage problem is still with us. Chapter 9. A Lesson in Mortality January 19, 2005 A death in the family is always hard. But three in three weeks is especially difficult for children, even though it only involved pets. First, it was the green tree frog discovered at the local car repair shop and taken home to be cared for. Sticky lived two months, long enough for the kids to become very attached. One day we found him dead in his cage. Then it was the two chickens brought home soon after being hatched at a friend's chicken coop. They lived only two days and died so innocent, so young and vulnerable. Below, I reprint the graveside homilies that I offered when they were buried. First, a reflection on mortality, a fact of life even more inevitable than taxes that modernity still can't seem to come to terms with. Death impresses upon us the limits of technology and ideology. It comes in time no matter what we do. Prosperity has lengthened lifespans, and science and entrepreneurship have made available amazing technologies that have forestalled and delayed it. Yet it must come. As Mises put it, man lives in the shadow of death. Whatever he may achieve in the course of his pilgrimage, he must one day pass away and abandon all that he has built. Each instant can become his last. There is only one thing that is certain about the individual's future. Death. Modernity has a problem intellectually processing the reality of death because we are so unwilling to defer to the implacable constraints imposed on us within the material world. Whole ideologies have been concocted on the supposition that such constraints do not have to exist. That is the essence of socialism. It is the foundation of U.S. imperialism, too, with its cocky supposition that there is nothing force cannot accomplish, that there are no limits to the uses of power. To recognize the inevitability of death means confessing that there are limits to our power to manufacture a reality for ourselves. It is akin to admitting that certain fundamental facts of the world, like the ubiquity of scarcity, cannot be changed. Instead of attempting to change it, we must imagine social systems that come to terms with it. This is the core claim of economic science, and it is also the very reason so many refuse to acknowledge its legitimacy or intellectual binding power. To discover the fountain of youth is a perpetual obsession, one that finds its fulfillment in the vitamin cults that promise immortality. We create government programs to pay for people to be kept alive forever on the assumption that death is always and everywhere unwarranted and ought to be stopped. There is no such thing as natural death anymore. The very notion strikes us as a cop-out. Thus do we insist on knowing the cause of death as if it only comes about through an exogenous intervention, like hurricanes, traffic accidents, 
shootings, and bombs. But even when a person dies of his own accord, we always want to know so we have something to blame. Heart failure? Well, he or she might have done a bit more exercise. Let this be a lesson. Cancer? It's probably due to smoking or perhaps secondhand smoke. Or maybe it was the carcinogens introduced by food manufacturers or factories. We don't want to admit that it was just time for a person to die. The denial of death's inevitability is especially strange since life itself serves up constant reminders of our physical limits. Sleep serves as a kind of metaphor for death. We can stay awake working and having fun up to 18 hours, even 24 or 36, but eventually we must bow to our natures and collapse in sleep. We must fall unconscious so that we can be revived to continue on with our life. Pills can delay the need for sleep, but cannot obliterate it. There are no substitutes for sleep, no food we can eat, no exercise we can undertake, no special words we can say. We can shake our fist in anger at our body's demand for sleep, but we must still give in. Sleep wins out over our individual wills every day of our lives, just as death wins out over our will to live forever. Our struggle against mortality can take productive forms, of course, as when we seek to leave great legacies in the material world, wealth, art, children, literature, charity, change lives. We do all this in part because we seek ways to make our brief lives take on meaning beyond themselves. To be high-minded means to care not only about our own times, but also about those that follow. If we cannot live forever, we at least want our impact on this world to live longer than nature permits us to live. All these impulses appear to be unique to the human person, a reflection of our unique rationality, and, for theists, the presence of a soul. Animals are another matter entirely. They avoid death by instinct. Yes, I realize the term explains nothing. But they do not seek immortality or strive to leave legacies or work to extend the lifespan of their species or otherwise improve the lot of their fellows through innovation. They are what we would be if we lacked rationality and souls. When a pet dies, all children ask the question, Will my pet go to heaven? I suppose the answer must be, not in the way we will find heaven. And yet, the children want hope that their pet will live again, and that they will see them living again. And because no scripture seems to say that there cannot be, it is reasonable to say that animals can live eternally if God so desires it. There are many problems with this idea, of course, since orthodoxy says there is no flesh in heaven, but if animals have no souls, how, precisely, would they go there? In the moments following the death of a pet, such theological ramblings have no place. What the moment calls for is closure, to use an overused buzzword. And so we gather in silence and dig the hole in the ground, place the corpse in it, and say some words. We gather to bury and pay tribute to Sticky, 
a tree frog who has been a good friend to us all. Quiet and unassuming, he lived a good life, stirred our imagination, and delighted us with his antics. We will miss you, Sticky. We are grateful for the life you lived. If there were ever a tree frog that deserved to enter the gates of heaven, it was surely Sticky. Each child takes some dirt on the shovel and tosses it in the grave, and it is patted down. We stand in silence for a few moments and walk away in the quiet evening. A similar scene repeated itself with the tiny chicks. We gathered to bury these two tiny chicks. Though they were so young and lived such short lives, we still gave them names. One-minute egg and two-minute egg. We will always remember them. Let us remember that we too will die one day, and when considering the whole length of eternity, our lives are not much longer than theirs. May our souls be as innocent as theirs when we breathe our last breath. By this time, the children were rather bored with funeral drama. They quickly scampered off to live full lives in the sunshine of day, deciding right then to think about death only when they must, but otherwise to live and love every breath. And so it should be. Commerce, Chapter 10, Truth in the Coin Shop, August 12, 2008 You are uptown in a shopping district of a small community, and you pass by the meat shop, the wine shop, the coffee shop, two churches side by side, a coin shop, an antique store, and hold it right there. A coin shop? This is irresistible, because as implausible as this may sound, all political truth can be found in a coin shop. And not just political truth, you find in here the story of the whole of modern life on exhibit, and learn more from looking than you find in a multi-volume history. There they are on display, coins from all lands. Why are they worth more than the coins in your pocket? Because they are old? And that's part of it, but not the essence of it. There are some new coins here that are also just as valuable as the old ones. What is critical is that they are made of gold and silver. You can pick them up and tell the difference. They are heavy. Stack them and let them fall on each other, and they make a different sound from the coins that usually rattle around in your pocket. It strikes everyone and anyone immediately. Somehow these coins are real. The coins we use today are not. But what does this really mean, and what does it imply? The value of the coins amounts to far more than their marked value. Even dimes before a certain date sell for 10 and 15 times the face value. The larger coins can be quite expensive. What is real here is their substance, not the printing on the outside. This is the opposite of modern coins, the substance of which is completely irrelevant. All that matters is what is printed on the outside. So the use of the term real here parallels how we use this term in any other context. Reality TV is said to provide the unvarnished truth about what people really do. We say someone should get real if we suspect that their thought or behavior is a mask or a blindfold that is obscuring a more obvious truth. 
so it is with coins. The new coins we use in transactions are not real. They are wearing a mask, a disguise, one put on by the state. More absurdly, the state tells us not to look at the reality, but rather to trust God that all is right with the money in the realm. The old coins, in contrast, are precisely what they say they are, and therefore have nothing to hide. There are no invocations that require a leap of faith. The truth is found on the scale and is told in ounces. And the gold ones are, of course, the ones you really want to hold. Their value reflects the metal content. Melt them, re-stamp them, make them into jewelry, and they are still worth no less than the market value of the metal. And who decides what the values of these old coins are? The coins might bear the likeness of a politician. They might bear the name of the nation-state. But these pictures and slogans are merely interlopers on the real point. What you hold is valuable, not because some legislature, treasury department, or central bank says it is valuable. Its worth was and is dictated by the market, which is to say, the choices and values of human beings. No government can add to or take away this value except by physically manipulating the coin itself. Not only that, if you dig deep enough in the coin shop, you might run across coins that were not minted by governments at all, but by private manufacturers. In the early years of the Industrial Revolution, this was the way coins were made in Britain, not by the Royal Mint, but by entrepreneurs no different from any other. George Selgin tells the whole story in his aptly named book, Good Money. It turns out that making money is a business like any other, not something that only governments do. In a free world, it would be something done entirely by private enterprise. The same is true of exchanging money. Some of the world's first great fortunes were made this way, profiting from the buy-sell spreads in coinage markets. Today, the business is the same in some respects, and one can see the appeal of it all. Bless those who sustain it and believe in it. So long as this good money is in your hands, it is your independent store of wealth. There are no taxes due, no withdrawals required, no forms to fill out. It is the physical embodiment of independence. It gives you freedom. It secures your rights. And because this coin is valued not by the nation-state, it rises above it and extends beyond it. Its value is recognized the world over, and not because the UN has proclaimed it, but rather because it is something everyone on the planet agrees on. Geographic mobility is only part of it. Look at the dates on the older coins. 1910, 1872, 1830, 1810, and earlier, and earlier. They are still beautiful because they are durable. Their value is not diminished over time, as with just about everything else we know about. Rather, it increases over time. And by its very nature, gold protects your investment from the depredations of modern life. How they inspire the imagination. What was the world like when such coins served as money? The economy wasn't managed by some central authority. It managed itself from within by the buying and selling decisions of economic agents themselves. The coins were selected by the market to serve as the facilitators of exchange, the things by which we were permitted to rise above the limits of barter. 
they made possible calculation between goods and services that were as widely diverse as the whole of the human project, and revealed what was profitable and what was not. So these coins made it possible to organize the world's resources into lines of production that served society in the most efficient way. And how did the politicians figure into this mix? When they got their hands on these coins, they could do terrible things. But it was rather difficult for them to get them. They had to demand that the citizens fork over the coins, or else, which is to say, they had to tax people. You have to have a pretty good reason to do this, or the lie you tell has to be pretty darn compelling. You can only tell fibs so many times before people catch on. If this is the only money that circulates, the aspiring Leviathan state faces a serious limit on its capacity to expand—a limit imposed by physical reality and the unwillingness of people to give up something for nothing. This is why every state is so anxious to see money substitutes circulate widely, preferably in the form of paper that can be made at will. If that same state can get banks to cooperate in creating more paper than can be redeemed by gold and silver coins, it can begin to habituate the population to the idea of fiat currency—that is, money that is invented out of whole cloth. Even better for the state is a system that completely separates paper money from its historical roots in good money. Then there are no limits at all to how much money it can make to fund itself and pay its friends, even if that means that money in general becomes even less valuable. On this process, see Hayek's prices and production. And here we have the short history of how money came to be destroyed and how the modern world came to host the ghastly leviathan that dominates the world. Here is the basis of destructive and unnecessary wars that last and last: the character-shredding welfare state, and the swarms of bureaucrats who run our lives in every respect. It all comes down to the way money was destroyed. You can tell from looking at the dates on coins that all of this happened surprisingly recently. The process began in the early 20th century with the cartelization of the banking system, so that banks could loan out money out of deposits they promised to pay on demand. The government's own debts would be paid no matter what. This helped with the war. Taxes don't cut it when it comes to funding global war, and so the financial system was encouraged to set aside its usual concerns over stability, since it was now guaranteed not to fail. The process continued with the attack on gold during the New Deal under the influence of people like John Maynard Keynes, who believed that paper money would usher in a new utopia of a government-managed economy. So desperate was FDR to have people stop trading good money that he demanded it all be turned in. He said this was necessary to stop the depression. Then the paper money revolution was furthered by people like Milton Friedman, who believed that a pure paper money would somehow bring about a stable price level through a formula that may have looked good on paper, but failed to account for the realities of politics. In the end, we ended up on the other side of the great divide between freedom and tyranny, all symbolized by the contrast between the coins of the past and the coins of the present. It is reality versus fiat, independence versus dependence, value that lasts versus value that is the whim of the transitory political class.
You discover all this when you walk into the coin shop. Have a conversation with the proprietor, who tends to be of a type, perhaps a bit crusty, but highly knowledgeable and independent-minded. At his office, he lives amidst this history. He is surrounded by the truth about money that most people never discover. He is daily faced with the beauty of what once was, and perhaps too he imagines the possibility that it could be again. He is not usually the despairing type either. He sees the difference between what is permanent and what is transitory. If you take the time, you can learn from him. If you trade with him, you can enter into his world of knowledge and partake in the ancient truth about money, politics, and civilization. To own these coins helps grant some sense of independence to you too. You will possess a store of wealth that is not subject to wild bubbles, state-manufactured inflations, and political whims. It is a kind of privatized secession. Is it any wonder that people who enter this world think differently from others? Their blinders are off. They see what is real and true. They no longer believe in the great modern lie that the state is our wise master, in whom we should trust our very lives. The owner of gold and silver coins is just a bit less attached to the state than others. And should a time of great crisis come, and you look among the survivors, you can be pretty sure that preeminent among them will be those who love the coin shop as much as I do. Chapter Eleven: Does Money Taint Everything? May Eighth, Two Thousand Eight. Let's pull this sentence out of the civic pieties of our time and see what's wrong with it. We should all volunteer our time in charitable causes and give back to the community in a labor of love. We can't argue with the instruction here, or the sentiment behind it. There is nothing wrong with giving and sacrifice. My argument is with the choice of language. It contains a word and three phrases, the common usage of which can be highly misleading. Voluntary. The word volunteer is used to describe a person who does things in service of others, and we all know the intent of the term. We speak of volunteering all the time. The United States has what is called the voluntary sector, which is supposed to refer mostly to nonprofit organizations that elicit non-remunerative employment. But think of the literal meaning of voluntary or volition. The act of making a conscious and non-coerced choice to do something. The opposite is to be forced to do something. So prisoners are forced to sleep on mats. People in the army are forced to march here and there. Or you and I can volunteer to sleep on a mat or to march here and there. It's true that people serving soup to the poor are not forced to be there. But in what sense does introducing wages or profits or money generally change the nature of choice? Are the paid administrators of homeless shelters any less volunteers? Not at all. They are making a conscious choice to serve the poor, just as the unpaid volunteers are making a conscious choice to be there. They are all free to do something else. Let's expand this to the for-profit sector. 
No one who works in retail or software or any other industry in a free economy is being forced to do anything. They are all there by choice, a result of having evaluated a variety of options and chosen one option over every other possible option. The opportunity foregone here is what might be called the cost of that choice. The doctor who administers medicine, the lawyer who writes a legal brief, the salesman who sells you a suit, the clerk who rings up the total, these are all volunteers. The investment banker is a volunteer. The introduction of money into exchanges, and all actions charitable and profitable are exchanges, doesn't change anything about the nature of the action. It doesn't switch it from voluntary to forced. This is not merely a terminological dispute. There is an ideological import to the use of the term voluntary to describe non-remunerative activities. It evidences a bias against the cash economy, as if monetary exchange and profit is a tainted motive, whereas the removal of money makes an action pure and beyond reproach. This is completely wrong. It's time we demystified the role of money in society. It serves a useful purpose. Under barter, goods and services are exchanged directly for each other. That works for primitive economies, but once complexities appear, barter has its limits. You can't exchange a cow for an egg or an auto plant for a hat because these goods aren't divisible. You need money to serve as a proxy for goods and services to exchange later. Money also serves the vital function of permitting economic calculation so you can know if exchanges are profitable, non-wasteful and productive, or yield losses, wasteful and non-productive. Thus is the institution of money not inherently corrupt or tainted. It is highly useful and necessary and arises merely in response to the desire of people to cooperate. Give back to the community. Give back to the community is a phrase used to implore people who have been successful in business to donate their time, talent, and treasure to some cause besides their business. There is no arguing with the injunction to serve others, but there is a problem with the phrase, give back. It implies that people with money have taken something from others. But presuming that the business person has been successful through enterprise, their wealth comes not from taking, but from cooperating with willing buyers. Let's see how this works. When you need milk in a hurry, you dash to the convenience store and pick up a carton. You put it on the counter and the clerk says what you owe. At that moment, there is a calculation made. The clerk determines that he or the person who employs him, values $2.50 more than the milk. You, on the other hand, determine that you value the milk more than the $2.50 you have been asked to pay for it. You exchange, and voila, you are both better off as a result. You have done a service to the convenience store, and the convenience store has done a service for you. The store is richer in money, and you are richer in goods. What do the two parties to the exchange owe each other afterwards? Nothing. What does justice demand? That they keep the bargain and nothing else. The milk can't be sour. The check can't bounce. Nothing else is required or asked.
Now, if the store clerk is sick and needs help, or the customer is poor and needs shelter, that's another matter. But what is asked in this case is completely unconnected from the results of the economic exchange. Expand this logic more broadly, and we can see that it applies to all people who make money, even vast amounts. Even the richest person, provided the riches come from mutually beneficial exchange, does not need to give anything back to the community because this person took nothing out of the community. Indeed, the reverse is true. Enterprise gives to the community. Their owners take huge risks and front the money for investment, precisely with the goal of serving others. Their riches are signs that they have achieved their aims. Labor of love. The phrase "labor of love" is used as a kind of euphemism for doing work without pay. It is an apt phrase if it means only that the person is so wild for his work that he is willing to do it even when there is no remuneration. But the phrase is also laden with the implication that if you are getting paid, it is not a labor of love. Surely, the most successful employees are those who love their work. That they receive salaries or wages in return for services offered only serves as a sign and a symbol of the value that the business owner attaches to that work. They are cooperating to their mutual satisfaction, which one might say is a form of showing love. In that way, all labor in a free market is a labor of love. Both parties are giving and receiving. Another unfortunate way to use this phrase is to imply that if you refuse to work without wages, you are not showing love. It is an undeniable fact that the use of time means the use of the most valuable resource we own. If a worker gives up a day that he could otherwise use earning wages, he might be foregoing a few hundred dollars of income. This lost income is the cost. It is what he pays in order to pursue a labor of love, so he is not merely forgoing income. There is a sense in which he is contributing to what otherwise would have been his income to the cause he is serving instead. What if that money was meant to buy groceries or medicine for his children? In this case, doing a labor of love instead would be a cruel act. It is even true of the wealthy business person. What if staying at work, even earning money, is the best way to serve the community? What if that person is a pharmacist or a doctor or a website worker who is helping to provide people vital information about religion or health or some other vital issue? Labor for wages is just as much a contribution to society as working somewhere else for free. What if a person is responsible for the well-being of thousands of employees? Is it not an act of love to stay on the job? There is no point in claiming that love is involved only when donating your time at no pay. You can pay or be paid and still show love. Again, this is not just about terminology. It is about the assumptions many people bring to the subject of economics as it affects ethics. People often take it for granted that the cash nexus is incompatible with clean living. 
we gain a clearer understanding of this issue by seeing that money and finance are merely instrumental institutions that serve the cause of human cooperation and human betterment. Yes, we should volunteer in charitable causes and give to the community in labors of love. This may not mean serving soup in a homeless shelter. Indeed, it might mean pulling down a large salary as an investment banker for commercial real estate ventures. Once we understand that the market economy is not incompatible with social justice, but is rather a form in which authentic social justice is realized in the real world, we will be more careful with the language we use. Chapter 12 Are We a Self-Hating Commercial Society? April 20th, 2010 I'm on a Sunday walk and a nice boy tries to sell me lemonade. A budding entrepreneur. Still, I decline. So he strengthens his pitch. I'm donating the profits to stop child abuse. Still, I decline, and more easily now that he has linked his praiseworthy commercial venture with a big social pathology that a 12-year-old boy can't possibly solve. Unless he's saving money to run away from home? In one short day, it was about the tenth time that I'd been assaulted by social consciousness in the course of just going about my business. At the grocery store, I was assured that I would save the planet by purchasing this cereal and that bag of potato chips. If I bought this instead of that coffee, I would help poor peasants in some far-flung place achieve social justice. Some pennies from a sports drink were supposedly donated to cure muscular dystrophy. My coffee cup is so socially aware that it saves trees and thereby stabilizes the global temperature. If I use the following search engine, I help fund charities that are making the world a better place. I have two reactions to all this static interference on what would otherwise be the clean lines of commercial society. This proves that the traditional rap on capitalism is false. It is not only about private gain for the few. Business can be as enlightened as the individuals running them. Note that all this praiseworthy other-directedness is being accomplished within the matrix of exchange, which has wrongly been maligned as selfish. As we can see, there is no contradiction between doing good and doing well. All these innovations that merge the third sector of charity with the first sector of profiteering illustrate that capitalism can adapt itself to an age of broad-minded social concern. Can we all please cut the sham and go back to plain old buying and selling? Reaction number two is dominating my thoughts here. Very few of the claims of these enterprises really stand up to any serious scrutiny. Take the coffee cup case as an example. If buying this cup saves trees, an even better way to save trees is not to buy coffee at all. And it's not clear that lowering the demand for paper is going to actually save trees at all, since a lower demand would eventually mean less reason to plant and renew the resource. And do we really need to save trees anyway? Does someone know the optimal number of trees that are supposed to be alive on the planet at one time? The case for socially just coffee is the one that really gets my goat. 
The coffee plantations that pay the highest wages and offer the most benefits to their workers are the largest, most established, and most well-connected plantations. The smaller, family-owned plantations can't afford all these things, but they are less likely to have access to the rating agencies and export companies. Why precisely are consumers supposed to favor the corporate big shots over the family farms and do so in the name of enlightened social consciousness? The whole campaign for fair trade coffee is one of the most bizarre and contradictory schemes that the dum-dum left has ever dreamed up. On the one hand, it is part of the genius of capitalism that gives rise to a class of entrepreneurs that can use any fashionable culture shift to make a buck. Whether a cereal is called sugar smacks or earthen honey morsels is neither here nor there to me. And if some marketing genius figures that the cereal company can make more money with one name over another, good for him and the company. Capitalism is so darn good at what it does that it can even bamboozle muddle-headed socialists to cough up money for its products. That's wonderful. And yet, I'm pretty fed up with the duplicity of the whole scheme. Consider that kid who tried to sell me lemonade. It is an admirable thing to set up a lemonade stand. He used his energy and time. He has to keep the ice cold and provide cups and persuade people to buy. He has to choose a good corner of the subdivision to do this. He might have to buy his own ingredients. Will he make a profit? Nothing is for sure in this world. Most likely, he will not, and he will have to be subsidized by mom and dad. But what if he does make a profit? Wouldn't that be wonderful? There would be nothing at all wrong with the world in which this kid who gave up his Sunday to sell refreshment could put five dollars in a piggy bank as a result. But no, we can't have that. Instead, he has learned from the social ethos that he must never, ever admit to making private gain. He has to manufacture some phony tale about how he will donate all proceeds to achieving some grand social vision of a world without child abuse. Isn't it enough that he gives a dozen people some Sunday refreshment and takes away a few bucks? Let's review the oldest contribution of liberal thought. The market society uses private gain to achieve social good via the mechanism of mutually beneficial exchange. I buy a jug of milk and the shopkeeper takes my money. We both say thank you to each other because we have both given each other a gift and we are both better off. The profits in the form of money, if there are any after expenses, are used to expand production so that there are ever more opportunities for trade. Multiply these little exchanges and investments by the world's population, and you have an ever more beautiful and fruitful garden of peace and prosperity. In this scheme, what is the role of giving to charitable causes? This is provided for by the growth of capital and wealth. Where there is enough left over after providing for basic survival needs, people turn their attention to widows, orphans, the sick, the symphonies, art galleries, saving salamanders, promoting religion, establishing quilt-weaving societies, and billions of other causes, all of which are evidence of rising prosperity. 
The direction of causation here is important. First, markets. Second, investments and exchange. Third, prosperity. Fourth, a zillion social causes that fall into the category of charity, social justice, and the like. Why is it that we are so fearful of telling the truth about this step-by-step plan for building civilization? Why are we so anxious to blur the distinction between the stages? What's more, if I want to give to charity, I'm perfectly capable of doing this on my own and according to my own values. I do not need business enterprises to intervene to help me along and show me the path to true enlightenment. When someone comes along to dictate to me what my values should be, I tend to push back. I just want products and services. I'll take care of the rest on my own dime. What is so complicated about this? During the Haitian crisis earlier this year, I could hardly move from place to place without someone demanding that I cough up for Haiti. It didn't matter if I had given $1,000 at the last stop. The not-so-subtle push at the next stop was for me to demonstrate that I care yet again. At some point during this mania, the number of people collecting for Haiti seemed to outnumber the number of people giving to Haiti by two to one. It's like there is some special social status to the class of charity collector, and we are all required to honor that. How to account for all this giving mania? Maybe it is all just a racket. Call it a cause racket. There are more bucks to be made by spreading guilt and pity than by offering goods and services. Therefore, everyone gets in on the act. That's one theory but it only goes so far. My own theory is that the anti-capitalist mentality has taken a serious toll. It hasn't yet destroyed commercial society, but it has caused commercial society to no longer be proud of the magic and glory embedded within its structures and logic. Why is this? Because we no longer understand how it is that markets convert private interests to public good. The simplest lesson of economics, proven again and again and again for 500 years, is lost on people today. By the way, when that kid told me he was raising money to stop child abuse, I replied as follows, I hope you keep some for yourself. You have to make a living somehow. His mouth fell open in shock. I hope he remembers what I told him and I hope his parents don't hunt me down to accuse me of child abuse. Chapter 13. The Glories of Change, September 15, 2008 The events on Wall Street, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and the selling off of Merrill Lynch are magnificent and inspiring events. What we see here are examples of sweeping and fundamental change taking place a huge upheaval that affects the whole of society, and toward the better, since what we have going on here is a massive reallocation of resources away from failing uses toward more productive uses. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars are on the move, sweeping all before them. And yet, take note, it is not war accomplishing this. It is not violence. It is not the result of a planning committee. No election is necessary. No terrorist act took place. 
There was no government edict. The agent of change here is the composite of all the world's exchanges that relentlessly shove resources this way and that way, so that they will find their most economically valued uses in society. No one person is in charge. Layers upon layers of decisions by millions and billions of people are the essential mechanism that makes the process move forward. All these decisions and choices and guesses come to be aggregated in a single number called the price, and that price can then be used in that simple calculation that indicates success or failure. Every instant of time all around the world, that calculation is made, and it results in shifts and movement and progress. But as wonderful as these daily shifts and movements are. What really inspires are the massive acts of creative destruction, such as when old-line firms like Lehman and Merrill melt before our eyes, their good assets transferred to more competent hands, and their bad liabilities banished from the face of the earth. This is the kind of shock and awe we should all celebrate. It is contrary to the wish of all principal players, and it accords with the will of society as a whole and the dictate of the market that waste not last and last. No matter how large, how entrenched, how exalted the institution, it is always vulnerable to being blown away by market forces. No more, no less so than the lemonade stand down the street. Dramatic shifts are essential for progress. But adapting to changing conditions and becoming an agent of that change, staying with the curve and jumping out in front of it, this is the real challenge. Enacting change, any kind of change, but especially big and fundamental change, sometimes seems impossible in this world. We all desire it and know it is necessary. Seeking the reality of rebirth has an appeal. But finding the mechanism to make it happen is hugely difficult. Try to change an institution from the inside, and you will meet resistance around every corner. Bureaucracies are nearly impossible to change. Even firms and private enterprise are reluctant to adapt and have to be pushed and nudged by the accounting ledger, or no movement happens. Churches and other charitable organizations can wither and die without periodic and fundamental change and upheaval. Many institutions grow up around the principle of stability first. The organizational structure tends in the direction of the protective mode, with everyone burrowing in and resisting doing something different today and tomorrow from what he or she did yesterday and the day before. Inertia is the default. How to break away from this problem is a great challenge. The theory of democracy was that we would have a voting mechanism to enact and force change, but the problem is that the votes and personnel shifts bring a change in the look and feel of government, but do not get below the surface. Wars and revolutions yield change, but at too great a cost. The change wrought by markets goes to the very core of the issue. It makes and breaks whole institutions sometimes overnight, and it does so in a beneficial way for the whole, without blood and without the risk of unanticipated calamity. All of the plans of big shots, all of the desires of our governing masters, 
All of the wishes and dreams of people who imagine themselves to be larger and more important than the rest of us melt like snow on a sunny day. In this sense, the market is the great leveler, the force in the universe that humbles all people and reminds them that they are no more important than anyone else, and that their wishes must ultimately be shelved when faced with the overwhelming desire on the part of market traders that some other reality emerge. For this reason, everyone should celebrate the end of Lehman and Merrill. Overnight, while we slept, the seemingly mighty were humbled. The first made last, and the last made first. The greatest became the least, all without a shot being fired. Chapter 14. Cooperation. How a Free Market Benefits Everyone. June 27, 2008. The following attempts to explain the most important idea in the history of social analysis. The notion, actually, it's a description of reality that is all around us but rarely noticed, has been around for centuries. It was first observed by ancients. It was first described with rigor by late medieval monks working in Spain. It was given scientific precision in the classical period. It is the basis of advances in social theory in the 20th century. In fact, it is an essential part of the case for freedom. It was the basis of the belief of our ancestors that they could throw off tyrannical rule and still not have society descend into poverty and chaos. The failure to comprehend this idea is at the very root of the pervasive bias against liberty and free enterprise in our times, on the left and the right. I speak of the division of labor, also known as the law of comparative advantage or the law of comparative cost, and also known as the law of association. Call it what you will, it is probably the single greatest contribution that economics has made to human understanding. This law, a law like gravity, not a law like the speed limit, is a description of why people cooperate and the ubiquity of the conditions that lead to this cooperation. If you can take a few minutes to learn it, you will understand how it is that society functions and grows wealthy even without a visible hand directing its path. You will also see how the criticism that the market economy leads to the strong dominating the weak is actually a sham. This law shows how it is that people can gain, materially and in every other way, by working together rather than working in isolation. They don't just gain the sense of satisfaction that comes with participation and solidarity with one's fellow man. They can actually gain in the real stuff of life, the goods and services that are available to us all. What's more, they gain more than the sum of their parts. Through cooperation and exchange, we can produce more than if we work in isolation. This applies in the simplest economic settings as well as the most complex ones. It helps to lay this out more rigorously so that you can observe the magic of the marketplace at work. I owe the following exposition to Ludwig von Mises in Human Action, Murray Rothbard in Freedom, Inequality, Primitivism, and the Division of Labor, and especially... Manuel Ayao's Not a Zero-Sum Game, which is available through Mises.org. Let's say you and I can both make bagels and pies. 
But there's a problem. You make both with incredible efficiency. In fact, you do a better job at making bagels and pies than anyone who has ever lived. You are the world-class all-time champion. Meanwhile, I'm not so hot at either. My bagels taste as good as yours, but they seem to take me ages to make. My pies are the same way. I struggle and struggle, but try as I might, I just can't seem to crank them out the way that you can. What is likely to happen under these conditions? The intuitive answer, which you will hear in just about every sociology class in the country, is that you will make all the bagels and pies. No one else will. You will lord it over the rest of us and have massive market power. If anyone wants either, he or she must come to you and you alone. You are privileged, favored, rich, powerful, and the rest of us can only sit in awe and beg from you. But in fact, that's not what happens at all. Let's back up a bit and see why. Let's say you and I have never met. We are both making bagels and pies. Here is what happens in a 24-hour period. You make 12 bagels in 12 hours and 6 pies in the remaining 12 hours. I, on the other hand, only manage to make 6 bagels in the first 12 hours and a mere 2 pies in the remaining 12 hours. If we both work at this pace, the total production is 18 bagels and 8 pies. In each case, the cost of what you decide to do is the thing you give up. So for you, the cost of each pie is two bagels, and, likewise, the cost of each bagel is a half of a pie. For me, the opportunity cost of making a pie is three bagels, and the cost of making a bagel is a third of a pie. Just looking at this, you might observe that you have your act together, whereas I'm pretty shabby. What chance in life do I have? Well, my hope is bound up with the reality that your time and resources are scarce and you want to have ever more of each. So you begin to think about exchange. Even though I'm not very good at either pies or bagels, you can still see that you can make more of one thing or the other by encouraging our cooperation, thereby freeing up your time to do what you do best. If you specialize in making pies, you still need some bagels. So you plan to exchange pies for bagels from me. With this thought in mind, you increase pie production and reduce bagel production. I, on the other hand, stop pie production completely and devote myself to bagel production in hopes of fobbing them off to you. So you now spend a mere eight hours on bagel making, in which time you produce eight bagels. In the remaining 16 hours of your day, you are able to bake eight pies. Meanwhile, I can now devote all of my time to bagel making, and I turn out 12 bagels in 24 hours. Let's total up the production. Before cooperation, 18 bagels and 8 pies. After cooperation, 20 bagels and 8 pies. So, what is the gain here? Precisely 2 bagels. Can you believe it? Nothing else changed. There was no increase in our production potential, no increase in technology, no change in consumer demand or the weather or the linearity of history itself. All that happened is that we agreed to produce in cooperative exchange rather than isolation, and voila, two additional bagels. You think there's a trick? Go back and check the numbers and the assumptions. I'm just as shabby as ever. 
and you are just as fabulous. And yet, there's a role for both of us. Let's say we now exchange the goods we make. You give me two of the pies you made in exchange for five bagels that I made. That leaves you with thirteen bagels and six pies, while I now have seven bagels and two pies. This would be reasonable, since those bagels you buy from me would have cost you five hours of production time. True, it took me ten hours to make them, but what do I get if I exchange? I get two pies, which would have taken me twelve hours to make. So there is a sense in which I, by specializing, have saved two hours. And how many hours have you saved by encouraging me to make bagels? Five hours, during which time you made pies. And what is the cost of exchange in material goods for each of us? You have given up two pies. I have given up five bagels. If our time is measured in terms of goods, you have given up the time equivalent of four bagels for five bagels, and thereby gained one. I have given up five bagels, but gained the time equivalent of six bagels, since my pie to bagel ratio is three to one. So who gained the most? In terms of bagels, we gained the same, one. In terms of time, I have gained more. In terms of pies, you have saved more. Who is the winner? Both of us. Again, what made us gain? Cooperation and exchange, nothing more. Now, you might say that this is absurd. No one sits around drawing exchange matrices to see how we might benefit by dividing up the production. But in fact, we do this all the time. I might be a wonderful musician and web programmer, but my advantage is web programming, so I leave the music production to other people, even if they do it less effectively. It's true in the business world. The boss might do an amazing job at accounting, cleanup, marketing, and customer support. He or she might do these things more efficiently than anyone else, but the cost of doing one thing is another thing given up. It makes sense to depend on others so that we can all specialize. Consider the great 19th century pianist Franz Liszt. He was the best and most highly paid musician in Europe. Let's say he was also a great piano tuner. Would it make sense for him to give up practice time for a concert that would pay him $20,000 in order to tune his own piano? Not at all. He would rather pay someone $200 to do that. The opportunity cost of piano tuning for Liszt was very high, but for the tuner it was very low. They exchange and both benefit. It is the same with doctors and nurses. The doctor might be great at prepping patients, but in doing so, the doctor is giving up performing another surgery that would earn him many thousands of dollars. Note that this makes sense even if one person has an absolute advantage in every area. What matters for the real world is not absolute advantage, but comparative advantage. That is where the law of association comes into being. It is true for two people, two hundred people, two thousand people, or all people all over the world. Herein, we have the case for international trade, for it changes nothing about people's mutual advantage that they reside in different lands. 
This is why it makes sense for both poor and rich countries to trade, as noted by Bartolome de Abernaz as early as the 16th century. If it were not for these contracts, some would lack the goods that others have in abundance, and they would not be able to share the goods that they have in excess with those countries where they are scarce. Note that these gains come not from design, but merely from freedom to associate, which Pope Leo XIII called a human right in his encyclical Rerum Novarum. If the state forbids its citizens to form associations, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence. For both they and it exist in virtue of the same principle, namely, the natural propensity of man to live in society. Both the moral and practical advantages were reiterated by Pope John Paul II in Centesimus Annus. It is becoming clearer how a person's work is naturally interrelated with the work of others. More than ever, work is work with others and work for others. It is a matter of doing something for someone else. Work becomes ever more fruitful and productive to the extent that people become more knowledgeable of the productive potentialities of the earth and more profoundly cognizant of the needs of those for whom their work is done. The law was formalized by David Ricardo in England and further emphasized by economists ever since. The significance is impossible to exaggerate. It means that it is not necessary that all people of the world have the same talents in order to benefit from cooperation. In fact, it is the very diversity of the human population that makes it advantageous for them to work together and trade to their mutual benefit. What this means is that isolation and self-sufficiency lead to poverty. Cooperation and the division of labor are the path to wealth. Understand that, and you can refute libraries full of nonsense from both the left and the right. Chapter 15. How to Handle Getting Fired. July 30, 2007. Wired Magazine this month offered a few pointers on how to disguise on your resume the fact that you have been fired. The main point is to come up with a negotiated settlement that has you resigning from your job. Many employers will go along with these because they fear litigation. There will be no wrongful termination lawsuits if you are on the record as having left voluntarily. I don't dispute this advice. It seems fine enough, but it doesn't deal with the much more important matter of how to handle being fired from a psychological and sociological point of view. The truth is that getting fired is one of the best things that can ever happen to you if you look at it in the right way. There is no reason to consider it the end of the world. It can be the beginning of great things. The key to understanding this is to zoom in on the nature of a labor contract. It is an agreement based on the expectation of mutual cooperation that betters the lot of both the employer and the employee. In a world without scarcity, the employer would rather do all work alone and not have to hire anyone. This would save in resources, and in any case, most employers figure that they can do a better job than anyone that they can hire, and often they are right. The very existence of institutions that are larger than sole proprietorships grows out of the need to divide the labor. 
even if the employer is the best sweeper, web developer, accountant, and marketing expert in the world, it is to his advantage to specialize in one area while farming out the other tasks, even if these tasks will not be done as well by others. Every employer then regards the hiring decision with a combination of dread. No one wants to waste money and relief. Finally, I can get something done around here. It is critically important for the employee to understand that he is doing no favors to the employer by working there, nor is the employer to be regarded as a generous distributor of funds, much less someone who is under some positive moral obligation to dish out. The employee is there because the nature of the world and the ubiquity of the scarcity of time and resources make it necessary. In order for there to be peace amidst this arrangement, there must be mutual benefit, always. When the mutual benefit ceases to exist, it is in the interest of both parties to dissolve the relationship. The employee can leave for greener pastures. In the same way, the boss can stop paying the employee in exchange for services that he no longer believes are a benefit to the company. To be fired only means that the employer takes the initiative in ceasing to fund further engagement. Both or either side of this exchange could be wrong, of course, but all human decision-making is speculative, and we can only act on the information we have. Why would anyone want to hang around at a dinner party at which he is not wanted? It's the same way with a labor contract. If you aren't wanted, you should walk away and consider yourself better off as a result. No lawsuits, no complaints, no bitterness, no acts of vengeance. Just a clean and happy break. Doesn't the reason you are fired matter? Not really. The employer doesn't always know the reason. He just knows that it is not working out from his point of view, and he is perfectly within his rights to terminate the prior agreement. Let me tell a quick story from my own work history. When I was in clothing sales, I was one of the top-ranked salesmen on the floor, but I didn't always see eye to eye with the owner boss. One Christmas season, he told all the salespeople that all alterations had to be promised out three weeks from the date they were sold. That struck me as outrageous. Sure enough, within the next hour, I had a customer come in and buy seven pricey suits, on condition that all alterations were to be done within the week. Now I should have gone to the boss and asked him. He would have said no. I'm quite sure. So I didn't. I went ahead and promised the suits out. At closing time, the boss found the tickets and threw all seven suits at me and demanded to know who was going to alter these. I said I will, and I promptly hit the sewing machines and began to sew. I had them all finished by nine p.m. that evening. I brought them in to him and said that I would deliver them to the customer personally in the morning. My boss said, "That's great," and added, "After that, I won't need your services any more." Was he wrong or right? He was wrong that firing me was good for his business. But he was right that he could not countenance an insubordinate employee, and just as a tip to the worker, there is no surer way to make yourself unwelcome than to be insubordinate. Even from a business point of view, he needed a staff that would follow his orders, right or wrong. Hey, it's not my style, but it was his clothing store, for goodness' sake. 
I ended up as a manager in another store, and we outcompeted his store in every season that followed. Being fired does not mean that your time with the company was a waste. In the time you were there, both you and your boss benefited in some way. Because conditions change doesn't negate that reality. The boss gained a worker, and you gained valuable experience. And one of the most valuable experiences is the shock of being fired. Sometimes it is the best way to get a person's attention. We all need improvement, and experiencing outright rejection provides a poignant reminder of this fact and an impetus to change. You might feel anger and even hatred. You might want to curse out your boss. You might plan a lawsuit, which seems to be everyone's first reaction. Instead, you need to do something completely counterintuitive. You need to thank your boss for having had confidence in you and for giving you the opportunity to work there. You need to say this as sincerely as you can. And when you see your boss at the grocery store or sports event in the future, you should bound up to him as if he were an old friend and thank him again. If you do this, there might come a time in the future. In fact, there certainly will, when this person will be in a position to recommend you for a job. He is far more likely to do so. In fact, he might be so impressed by your magnanimity that he will offer you your job back. You can politely turn him down if you so wish. The point here is that there is nothing productive about resentment or hate, any more than you should hate the convenience store from which you no longer buy milk. You once benefited from exchange, and you no longer perceive the advantage in doing so. Big deal. If it makes it any easier, let us remember that you were most likely paid more than you contributed to the firm. Wages work this way. I can recall that I worked with some jerk who refused to straighten inventory in the back room. For minimum wage, I won't do this. But the truth is that he was paid far more than he gave back. An employer often pays wages in advance to productivity, hoping that he is making some kind of investment in the future. It is only later that you become productive enough to make it worth it for him. At which point he has to raise your wages in anticipation of future productivity. So there is a sense in which everyone is indebted to the employer. The worst fate to befall the American labor market came after World War II, when employees began to think of all jobs as lifetime jobs, the way they are in economically backward and decaying Europe today. In a free market, we would hop from job to job without any problem. Employers would freely hire and fire, trying people out the way we try on shoes, and employees would be the same way. In this way, we are more likely to find the right fit, and our places of work would become less contentious, places of happiness and peace. Nothing is more absurd than the attempt to restrict the right to fire. Volunteerism goes both ways: the employee can leave, and the employer can fire. Any other system, such as one that would restrict either action, is an act of coercion that diminishes the well-being of both sides. Thinking of our kids here and their job experiences, we should hope that they get fired from at least one job or several in their early work years. Being fired reminds us of our obligation, the contractual nature of work, 
and the need for agreement and voluntarism in all social relations. The act of getting fired underscores the existence of the freedom of association, which is the key to social peace and a foundation of a growing economy. Do your part and take it well. Chapter 16 The Trouble with Child Labor Laws February 11, 2008 Let's say you want your computer fixed or your software explained. You can shell out big bucks to the Geek Squad, or you can ask, but you can't hire, a typical teenager or even a pre-teen. Their experience with computers and the online world is vastly superior to that of most people over the age of 30. From the point of view of online technology, it is the young who rule. And yet, they are professionally powerless. They are forbidden by law from earning wages for their expertise. Might these folks have something to offer the workplace? And might the young benefit from a bit of early work experience, too? Perhaps, but we'll never know, thanks to antiquated federal, state, and local laws that make it a crime to hire a kid. Pop culture accepts these laws as a normal part of national life, a means to forestall a Dickensian nightmare of sweatshops and the capitalist exploitation of children. It's time we rid ourselves of images of children tied to rug looms in the developing world. The kids I'm talking about are one of the most courted of all consumer sectors. Society wants them to consume, but law forbids them to produce. You might be surprised to know that the laws against child labor do not date from the 18th century. Indeed, the national law against child labor didn't pass until the Great Depression in 1938 with the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was the same law that gave us a minimum wage and defined what constitutes full-time and part-time work. It was a handy way to raise wages and lower the unemployment rate, simply define whole sectors of the potential workforce as unemployable. By the time this legislation passed, however, it was mostly a symbol, a classic case of Washington chasing a trend in order to take credit for it. Youth labor was expected in the 17th and 18th centuries, even welcome, since remunerative work opportunities were newly present. But as prosperity grew with the advance of commerce, more kids left the workforce. By 1930, only 6.4% of kids between the ages of 10 and 15 were actually employed, and 3 out of 4 of those were in agriculture. In wealthier urban industrialized areas, child labor was largely gone as more and more kids were being schooled. Cultural factors were important here, but the most important consideration was economic. More developed economies permit parents to purchase their children's education out of the family's surplus income, if only by foregoing what would otherwise be their earnings. The law itself, then, forestalled no nightmare, nor did it impose one. In those days, there was rising confidence that education was the key to saving the youth of America. Stay in school, get a degree or two, and you would be fixed up for life. Of course, that was before academic standards slipped further and further, and schools themselves began to function as a national child-sitting service. 
Today, we are far more likely to recognize the contribution that disciplined work makes to the formation of character. And yet, we are stuck with these laws, which are incredibly complicated once you factor in all state and local variations. Kids under the age of 16 are forbidden to earn income in remunerative employment outside a family business. If dad is a blacksmith, you can learn to pound iron with the best of them. But if dad works for a law firm, you're out of luck. From the outset, federal law made exceptions for kid movie stars and performers. Why? It probably has something to do with how Shirley Temple led box office receipts from 1934 to 1938. She was one of the highest earning stars of the period. If you are 14 or 15, you can ask your public school for a waiver and work a limited number of hours when school is not in session. And if you are in private school or home school, you must ask your local social service agency. Not exactly the most welcoming bunch. The public school itself is also permitted to run work programs. This point about approved labor is an interesting one if you think about it. The government doesn't seem to mind so much if a kid spends all non school hours away from home, family, and church, but it forbids them from engaging in private sector work during the time when they would otherwise be in public school, drinking from the well of civic culture. A legal exemption is also made for delivering newspapers. As if bicycles rather than cars were still the norm for this activity. Here is another strange exemption. Youth working at home, in the making of wreaths composed of natural holly, pine, cedar, or other evergreens, including the harvesting of the evergreens. Perhaps the wreath lobby was more powerful during the Great Depression than in our own time. Oh, and there is one final exemption. As incredible as it may be, federal law allows states to allow kids to work for a state or local government at any age, and there are no hourly restrictions. Virginia, for example, allows this. The exceptions cut against the dominant theory of the law that it is somehow evil to commodify the labor of kids. If it is wonderful to be a child movie star, congressional page, or home base wreath maker, why is it wrong to be a teenage software fixer, a grocery bagger, or ice cream scooper? It makes no sense. Once you get past the exceptions, the bottom line is clear. Full time work in the private sector, for hours of their own choosing, is permitted only for those children who are 18 and older. By which time a child has already passed the age where he can be influenced toward a solid work ethic. What is lost in the bargain? Kids no longer have a choice to work for money. Parents who believe that their children would benefit from the experience are at a loss. Consumers who would today benefit from our teens' technological know how have no commercial way to do so. Kids have been forcibly excluded from the matrix of exchange. There is a social cultural point, too. Employers will tell you that most kids coming out of college are radically unprepared for a regular job. It's not so much that they lack skills or that they can't be trained, it's that they don't understand what it means to serve others in a workplace setting. They resent being told what to do, tend not to follow through, and work by the clock instead of the task. 
In other words, they are not socialized into how the labor market works. Indeed, if we perceive a culture of sloth, irresponsibility, and entitlement among today's young, perhaps we ought to look here for a contributing factor. The law is rarely questioned today, but it is a fact that child labor laws didn't come about easily. It took more than a hundred years of wrangling. The first advocates of keeping kids out of factories were women's labor unions, who didn't appreciate the low-wage competition. And true to form, labor unions have been reliable exclusionists ever since. Opposition did not consist of mining companies looking for cheap labor, but rather parents and clergy alarmed that a law against child labor would be a blow against freedom. They predicted that it would amount to the nationalization of children, which is to say that the government, rather than the parents or the child, would emerge as the final authority and locus of decision making. To give you a flavor of the opposition, consider this funny beatitude read by Congressman Fritz G. Lanham of Texas on the House floor in 1924, as a point of opposition to a child labor ban then being considered. Consider the federal agent in the field; he toils not, nor does he spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his populous household was not arrayed with powers like one of these. Children, obey your agents from Washington, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, for the government has created them but a little lower than the federal agent. Love, honor, and disobey them. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, tell it to thy father and mother, and let them do it. Six days shalt thou do all thy rest, and on the seventh day thy parents shall rest with thee. Go to the bureau officer, thou sluggard. Consider his ways and be idle. Toil, thou farmer's wife. Thou shalt have no servant in thy house, nor let thy children help thee. And all thy children shall be taught of the federal agent, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Thy children shall rise up and call the federal agent blessed. In every way, the opponents were right. Child labor laws were and are a blow against the freedom to work and a boost in government authority over the family. The political class thinks nothing of legislating on behalf of the children, as if they are the first owners of all kids. Child labor laws were the first big step in this direction, and the rest follows. If the state can dictate to parents and kids the terms under which teens can be paid. There is essentially nothing they cannot control. There is no sense in arguing about the details of the law. The critical question concerns the locus of decision making: family or state, private market or public sector. In so many ways, child labor laws are an anachronism. There is no sense speaking of exploitation as if this were the early years of the industrial revolution. Kids as young as ten can surely contribute their labor in some tasks and ways that would help them come to grips with the relationship between work and reward. They will better learn to respect private forms of social authority outside the home. They will come to understand that some things are expected of them in life. And after they finish college and enter the workforce, 
It won't come as such a shock the first time they are asked to do something that may not be their first choice. We know the glorious lessons that are imparted from productive work. What lesson do we impart with child labor laws? We establish early on who is in charge, not individuals, not parents, but the state. We tell the youth that they are better off being mall rats than fruitful workers. We tell them that they have nothing to offer society until they are eighteen or so. We convey the impression that work is a form of exploitation from which they must be protected. We drive a huge social wedge between parents and children, and lead kids to believe that they have nothing to learn from their parents' experience. We rob them of what might otherwise be the most valuable early experience of their young adulthood. In the end, the most compelling case for getting rid of child labor laws comes down to one central issue: the freedom to make a choice. Those who think young teens should do nothing but languish in classrooms in the day and play Wii at night will be no worse off. But those who see that remunerative work is great experience for everyone will cheer to see this antique regulation toppled. Maybe then the kids of America can put their computer skills to use doing more than playing World of Warcraft. Chapter Seventeen, Generation Sloth, September Seventh, Two Thousand Nine. It's Labor Day, but there's nothing to celebrate. On July twenty-fourth this year, the government raised the minimum wage to seven dollars and twenty-five cents, which is another way of saying that unemployment is mandatory for anyone who is otherwise willing to work for less. You have no freedom to negotiate or lower the price for your service. You are either already valuable at this rate, or you are out of the game. Here is how it works. I've never been good at shaping pizza dough by hand. Throwing it up in the air the way those guys do, so it would certainly cost more for any pizza joint to hire me at that high rate than I could bring them in revenue. I would be a sure money loser. As a result, the government has made it effectively illegal for me to attempt this kind of work. This is done to help me, so they say. This predicament is no longer isolated to a small sliver of the population that no one cares about, namely people who dabble in second careers, such as the pizza example, and the poorest of the poor. Now the problem is culture-wide, so perhaps someone will start to get interested in its causes and consequences. August data show that more than a quarter of teenagers looking for work cannot find employment at the existing wage floor. Many have just stopped trying. The teen unemployment rate is nearly three times the national rate, and it is four times the rate of skilled and experienced workers over the age of fifty-five. This is the highest rate ever recorded in the United States. The data have only been kept since 1948, but we can be quite sure that never in U.S. history have so many teens been so alienated from gainful employment and work experience. These are the years in which young people learn valuable skills and ethics that they will carry with them until they die. At work, they meet a great variety of people and have to learn to deal cooperatively with different temperaments and personalities. 
They learn how to do things they do not really want to do, and they also discover the relationship between work and reward. They gain their first experience with independent use of money, acquiring and spending, and how to calibrate the relationship between the two. These are skills people draw on forever. They are far more important to their future than is the main activity taking up their time, sitting at school desks. This portends terrible things for the future of the American workforce. People dumped on the labor market after college will be ever more worthless than they are already. And when I read that the stimulus package includes funding for job training for teens as a way of addressing this problem, I couldn't stop laughing. Government-funded job training has a long record of being a full employment program for tax-funded job trainers, but otherwise amounting to a big nothing. Interestingly, there is a corresponding trend affecting those who are getting their first jobs out of college. It turns out that half of college graduates under the age of 25 are working in jobs that require no college education at all. Think of Starbucks, The Gap, Target, and the like. Not that there is anything wrong with these jobs, but here's the thing: these positions used to be held by young people before they finished college, which is in turn devoting itself to remedial education on the basics. Do you see what is happening here? The minimum wage, subsidized college loans, child work laws, and other interventions are conspiring to prolong adolescence as long as possible, to the point that these young adults are seeing as much as a full decade of life experience pretty well stolen from them. And there are no signs that this will change once the recession ends. After the last recession, youth unemployment never recovered its losses. Why are we not seeing the Million Teen March on Washington? Not everyone understands what is happening or why. I doubt that one in one hundred teens would consider that the minimum wage is what is keeping them unemployed. And the college grads themselves are pretty well befuddled as to why the great promise of future riches, if they stay in school, is not panning out. Rather than be angry at government, most of these kids are merely cynical and dependent on periodic parental bailouts. College students themselves lack work experience, so they don't have a realistic understanding of what the work world requires of them. They major in management and imagine that with this fabulous degree, they will possess the right to earn big bucks by bossing people around. A degree in communications will get them on Fox News. An urban planning degree will provide the opportunity, nay, the right, to build cities and highway systems. Then the day of graduation comes, and reality hits hard. There is no one who wants what they know, and in fact, they know very little that makes them useful. Their resumes are barren, without a single professional reference or anything that is connected to the real world. All they really know is how to vegetate in class and socialize with peers on nights and weekends. For example, I've been personally shocked at the lack of basic software skills that college grads have. There is hardly any professional position anywhere that doesn't require some facility with software and technology. Is this not common knowledge? I guess not. 
people are continuing to graduate today with no more technical skills than it takes to manage a Facebook page. As for work ethics and the ability to add value to an enterprise versus merely serving their own interests, forget it. Generation Sloth knows nothing about this. It's probably not their fault. Aside from the economic costs, the biggest cost is to the human character. It encourages the worst possible value system during the critical years in which character is shaped. Our country is caging people up for a quarter of their lives in government holding tanks and then dumping them on a cold, cruel world for which they are not prepared. It's true that this trend began back in the 1930s when FDR decided that he could help the unemployment problem by making it illegal for young teens to work, unless, of course, they are child actors like Shirley Temple. That's like losing weight by rigging the scale to lie to you. Ever since, federal law has tightened and tightened to the point that nearly the entire teenage population is being barred from the division of labor and otherwise told nothing about what it requires to be part of it down the line. I end on an optimistic note, and not merely because it is customary. The digital age is providing ever more opportunities for people to make their own way in this world, outside the old definition of formalized work. The government closes doors. The market, incredibly and fortuitously, keeps opening them. Chapter 18. How Free is the Free Market? January 21, 2008. See if you can spot anything wrong with the following claim, a version of which seems to appear in a book, magazine or newspaper every few weeks for as long as I've been reading public commentary on economic matters. The dominant idea guiding economic policy in the United States and much of the globe has been that the market is unfailingly wise. But lately, a striking unease with market forces has entered the conversation. The world confronts problems of staggering complexity and consequence from a shortage of credit following the mortgage meltdown to the threat of global warming. Regulation is suddenly being demanded from unexpected places. Now, a paragraph like this one printed in the New York Times opinion section on December 30, 2007, in an article called The Free Market, A False Idol After All? makes anyone versed in economic history crazy with frustration. Just about every word is misleading in several ways, and yet some version of this scenario appears as a basis of vast amounts of punditry. The argument goes something like this. Until now, we've lived in a world of laissez-faire capitalism, with government and policy intellectuals convinced that the market should rule no matter what. Recent events, however, have underscored the limitations of this dog-eat-dog system and reveal that simplistic ideology is no match for a complex world. Therefore, government, responding to public demand that something be done, has cautiously decided to rein in greed and force us all to grow up and see the need for a mixed economy. All three claims are wrong. We live in the hundredth year of a heavily regulated economy, 
and even fifty years before that, the government was strongly involved in regulating trade. The planning apparatus established for World War I set wages and prices, monopolized monetary policy in the Federal Reserve. Presumed first ownership over all earnings through the income tax. Presumed to know how vertically and horizontally integrated businesses ought to be, and prohibited the creation of intergenerational dynasties through the death tax. That planning apparatus did not disappear, but lay dormant temporarily, awaiting FDR, who turned that machinery to all-around planning during the 1930s. The upshot of which was to delay recovery from the 1929 crash until after the war. Just how draconian the intervention is ebbs and flows from decade to decade, but the reality of the long-term trend is undeniable. More taxes, more regulations, more bureaucracies, more regimentation, more public ownership, and even less autonomy for private decision making. The federal budget is nearly three trillion dollars per year, which is three times what it was in Reagan's second term. Just since Bush has been in office. Federal intervention in every area of our lives has exploded, from the nationalization of airline security to the heavy regulation of the medical sector to the centralized control of education. With free markets like this, who needs socialism? So the first assumption that we live in a free market world is simply not true. In fact, it is sheer fantasy. How is it that journalists can continually get away with asserting that the fantasy is true? How can informed writers continue to fob off on us the idea that we live in a laissez-faire world that can only be improved by just a bit of public tinkering? The reason is that most of our daily experience in life is not with the Department of Labor or Interior or Education or Justice; it is with Home Depot, McDonald's. Kroger's and Pizza Hut. Our lives are spent dealing with the commercial sector mostly because it is visible and accessible, whereas the depredations of the state are mostly abstract, and its destructive effects mostly unseen. We don't see the inventions left on the shelf, the products not imported due to quotas, the people not working because of minimum wage laws, etc. Because of this, we are tempted to believe the unbelievable, namely that government serves the function only of a night watchman, and only by believing in such a fantasy can we possibly believe the second assumption, which is that the problems of our society are due to the market economy, not to the government that has intervened in the market economy. Consider the housing crisis. The money machine called the Federal Reserve cranks out the credit as a subsidy to the banking business, the bond dealers, and the big spending politicians who would rather borrow than tax. It is this alchemic temple that distorts the reality that credit must be rationed in a way that accords with economic reality. The Federal Reserve embarked on a wild credit ride in the late 1990s that has dumped some four trillion dollars in new money via the credit markets, making expansion of the loan sector both inevitable and unsustainable. At the same time, the federal bureaus that manage and guarantee the bulk of mortgages have ballooned beyond belief.
The popularity of subprime mortgages is the tip of a massive but buried debt mountain, all in the name of achieving the American dream of home ownership through massive government intervention. Say what you want about this system, but it is not the free market at work. Indeed, the very existence of central banking is contrary to the capitalist ideal in which money would be no different from any other good, produced and supplied by the market in accord with the moral law against theft and fraud. For the government to authorize a counterfeiter in chief is a direct attack on the sound money system of a market economy. Let's move to the third assumption. That government intervention can solve social and economic problems, with global warming at the top of the heap. Let's say we remain agnostic on the question of whether there is global warming and what the cause really is. There is still no settled answer to either issue, despite what you hear. The very idea of putting the government in charge of changing the weather of the next one hundred years is another notion from fantasy land. The point about complexity counts against government intervention, not for it. The major contribution of F. A. Hayek to social theory is to point out that the social order, which extends to the whole of the world, is far too complicated to be managed by bureaus, but rather depends on the decentralized knowledge and decisions of billions of market actors. In other words. He gave new credibility to the insight of the classical liberals that the social order is self-managing and can only be distorted by attempts to centrally plan. Planning, ironically, leads to social chaos. You don't have to be a social scientist to understand this. Anyone who has experience with public sector bureaucracies knows they cannot do anything as well as markets. And however imperfect free markets are, they are vastly more efficient and humane in the long run than the public sector. This is because free markets trust the idea of freedom generally, whereas other systems imagine that men in charge are as omniscient as gods. In one respect, the New York Times is right. There is always a demand for economic intervention. The government never minds having more power, and is always prepared to paper over the problems it creates. An economy not bludgeoned by powerful elites is the ideal we should seek, even if it has a name that is wildly unpopular: capitalism. Chapter nineteen: The other side of the transaction, November twelfth. 2007. The cashier overlooked the milk in my shopping cart, so there had to be a separate transaction to process it. I paid for it with American Express, and it suddenly occurred to me to apologize. I'm so sorry for that. Your fees on that card will probably exceed your profit. She looked at me as if I were speaking an unintelligible language. My fees? She asked. Yes, American Express is the most expensive card on the market. You guys have to pay per charge and also a percentage of the transaction. This was only a couple of bucks spent here, so these fees can really eat into your profit margin. I don't pay any fees, she said. It was at this point that I realized that we were on two different planets. She works for the company as a worker. The store makes a contract with her to show up and do certain things. She does them. 
She gets paid for this. That's the beginning and end of her economic role in the matrix of exchange. She is unaware that she is a consumer too of the employment services offered by the store. These services must be paid for out of revenue generated by sales. From this revenue, the business pays the clerk, the business pays the credit card company, the business pays tax, the business pays rent, the business pays for shelving and machinery. The business must acquire, usually purchase, the goods it sells before it sells them. In doing all of this, it is taking a risk because the profit is the last stage of the transaction. The expenses are paid earlier in the production process. Here is the other side of the coin that the worker doesn't have to think about at all. Neither does the consumer. We walk into stores and think, "Wow, great stuff!" or What a bunch of junk! We examine the place to see if there is anything that would be valuable enough for us to acquire in exchange for the marked amount of money that the store wants from us. The deal is there for the taking. It is up to us to decide if we want to take it. No one forces us. If we walk away, there is no penalty for us. We don't have to think about the strange reality that these retail and grocery stores carry millions in inventory. Tens of millions, all of it gathered together in one spot, in the hope that we will like it and be willing to give our money in exchange for it. I was in a sporting goods store the other day that seemed to have everything one can imagine. How much inventory? Ten million dollars? One hundred million dollars? It was all beyond belief, and trying to run the numbers in my head boggled my mind. And here I was buying a two-dollar pair of socks. That's a tiny chink out of the inventory. They might clear twenty-five cents on the transaction after all the expenses are paid, and yet they did it all for me and others like me—consumers who are free to buy or not buy. And then, what does the store do with its profits after wages, expenses, and inventory? Why, it has to replace those socks I just bought, so that someone else can buy another pair. It has to expand more to compete with the new sporting goods store that just opened up down the street. So it has to acquire ever more great stuff and sell it at the lowest price possible. There is no final victory in this battle. All profits are yesterday. All losses could be tomorrow. To call enterprise a risk is really to understate the problem. Entrepreneurs have a special capacity to discern the uncertain future, but they possess no power to actually create that future. It could be that tomorrow morning no one will show up at the grocery store. That could persist through the afternoon and so on through the evening. The same could happen the next day and the next until the company goes bankrupt. And how long will that take? It depends on how much money the owners are willing to lose in the course of betting on a profitable future. This crazy uncertainty of the future, a factor which we cannot overcome, no matter how much data we accumulate or how many fortune tellers we call upon, is a universal condition, always maddening and infuriating, but completely unsolvable. It doesn't change for rich or poor. The largest corporation and the smallest lemonade stand face this trial in precisely the same way. Neither knows what the future truly does hold. 
The difference between the rich and the poor is how much money a person can afford to lose when he turns out to be wrong. To possess a consciousness about the two sides of enterprise is a burden in some ways. It destabilizes you and actually makes you wonder how the system can work at all. How can a store hold on to millions in inventory and pay for it twenty-five cents at a time while being required by competitive pressure to expand ever more? More questions. How can a business employ hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people to produce goods long before they know with certainty that anyone will buy them? Why are there such people as entrepreneurs who are willing to take all this on? Why are they so unlike the masses of people who would rather act solely as consumers of all the glories that the free enterprise system dishes out? These thoughts are the ones economic understanding gives rise to, and they are not exactly comforting. The old-style classical liberals reveled in the fact that these impersonal forces worked without anyone really being aware of them or having to understand them. The checkout lady at the store just shows up, pushes buttons, gets paid, and stays or leaves based on her assessment of her own well-being. Everyone else does the same. The pursuit of self-interest generates this amazing global matrix that benefits everyone. The old liberals reveled in the fact that no one had to understand it, but then the system itself came under attack and needed defense. It had to be understood to be explained and explained in order to be preserved. This is why Ludwig von Mises set out to revise liberal doctrine. It is not enough that people participate unknowingly in the market economy; they must understand it and see how, and precisely how, their smallest and selfish contribution leads to the general good. And moreover, they must desire that general good. All of which is to say that in an enlightened world, it would be a good thing for that cashier to understand economics from the point of view of those who pay her. It would be good for striking workers to understand how they are harming not only their bosses but also themselves. It would be good for voters to see how supporting government benefits for themselves harms society at large. An economically literate public is the foundation for keeping that amazing and wild machine called the market working and functioning for the benefit of the whole of humanity. Chapter twenty. Lounge lizards, weak wastrels, and forgetters. May seventeenth, two thousand two. Pity the businessman who hires someone just out of school. Most graduating seniors have lived a lush life in college, after living a lazy life in high school and a goof-off life before that. Graduating seniors know all about credit cards, popular culture, web surfing, internet chat, and PC politics, but. Next to nothing about what used to be called the work ethic. In short, they are worse than useless to the world of commerce. What follows is a primer in five hundred words, easy rules for how new workers can go from worthless to super valuable with nothing other than a change of attitude. The current job market is tight, which makes it look very much like most job markets in human history. Workers are paid in proportion to what they contribute to the overall productivity of the firm. 
It doesn't seem possible, but this is the number one fact about work that new hires do not seem to understand. So let me repeat it: people are not paid because they finish school. They are not paid because they got through the job application process. They are not paid simply because they now enjoy a new job title. They are not paid so that the firm can enjoy the privilege of their presence. People are not paid for any of these reasons, or at least they are not paid for any of these reasons for very long. They are paid for only one reason: to make the firm more productive than it would be in their absence. Moreover, if workers hope to keep their position and improve it, their contribution to the productivity of the firm must exceed the resources that the firm is putting into them. I recall once when I was working in retail at the age of sixteen, the manager came by and told me and another employee to straighten up some messy products on a shelf. After the manager walked on, my coworker turned to me and said, "I don't straighten shelves for minimum wage." A few weeks later, of course, he wasn't getting minimum wage to do anything because he was tossed out on his ear. New workers need to understand that they are mostly overpaid, even vastly overpaid. The employer is making an investment in hopes that you will become more valuable over time. The point is that you must always strive to be worth more to the firm than you are paid to be. Beyond understanding this elementary point. There are only five simple rules for getting by in the world of work. If you adhere to them, you will be an immense success in life, now until the day you die. If you do not, you had better hope for a job in the government, join a union, or aspire to fulfill a quota. Here they are. One, listen carefully to instructions and never expect to be told anything a second time. Two. Do a complete job and do it better than your supervisor expects you to do it. Three, work diligently to the point of discomfort and without interruption or complaint. Four, complete all tasks in a timely manner, meaning as soon as possible. Five, if you run out of assigned tasks, look for other jobs to do that help others and the firm. That's it. Five rules to a happy, productive job, to a happy, productive life. Do these sound absurdly commonplace? Perhaps. Why then are most all new workers and many old workers unable to understand them or unable to follow through with them? It seems that people can pass their twenty-second birthday these days without ever having encountered a setting where these things are expected of them. There are a few more don'ts too. Don't get involved in office politics. Don't overstep the bounds of your authority. Don't envy the pay or working conditions of others. Don't be a smart aleck. But these are just the finer points. The main point is to learn to be valuable to others by listening and following through. It's on this simple point where so many fail. I know a wise man who said that there are three types of losers in the world: the lounge lizard, the weak wastrel, and the forgetter. Adhere to the five great rules of work, and you will be none of these. You will be immensely valuable to a business and therefore to the world. You will be constantly on the march toward better and better jobs.
You will be happy. You will be financially successful. You will be loved, appreciated, and admired. In any case, you won't be a loser. If you turn out to be, blame no one but yourself. Chapter 21 What are Just Prices? June 6, 2008 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew 13.44 We all have strange and contradictory wishes concerning what prices should be. We are outraged at what is happening to the price of gas and food. We don't think they should go up. In real terms, we want them to fall, and they have fallen in the last decade and a half. That's a good thing, right? That's how the world should work. But housing? Now, that's a different matter. When the prices fall, people freak out. It's like the end of the world. How is it possible that my own home would fall in price? That's not the way the world should work. Everyone knows that house prices are supposed to go up, up, up all the time, without fail, until the end of time. Same with stocks. We want to open the web page that lists our portfolios and see the prices higher and higher all the time. When they fall, we flip out and demand justice. But let's stop and think about how peculiar this is. What kind of theory of the world insists that houses and stocks always go up in price, whereas gas and grain prices always go down? That doesn't really make sense. A price is not set by natural law, nor are price movements intended to follow a preset pattern like the movements of stars. Prices are nothing but exchange ratios, points of agreement between buyer and seller. They reflect many factors, none of them fixed parts of the universe. So why do we expect some to rise and some to fall? It all depends on whether you are in a position of a producer or a consumer. As homeowners, we are in fact producers of our homes. That is to say, we are holding them with the expectation of someday offering them for sale. The same is true of our stocks. We already own them, so of course we want the price to go up. Then we can sell them at a profit. On the other hand, on things we intend to buy, things like gas and grain, we want the price to be as low as possible. We want their prices to fall. That way we save resources. So what's at work here is self-interest. Think of the same situation from the point of view of someone who is a first-time home buyer. Does this person want high prices or low prices? Of course, the answer is obvious. This person wants the lowest price possible. So for this person, this housing bust is not a bust at all. It is a boon. But once this person becomes a homeowner, matters change. Now he wants prices to rise. Now think of the gas station owner. If it didn't affect how much he sold, would this person want prices to rise or fall? Of course, he wants the highest price possible. I recall once dickering with one of those insufferable car salesmen. I had my eye on some car and I said I couldn't afford it. He asked me how much I wanted to pay for this car. I said zero dollars. 
He looked at me like I was crazy, but I was only telling the truth. I added that I know how much he wanted me to pay, a trillion dollars. And he reluctantly agreed. So how do the person who wants to pay zero dollars and the person who wants to get a trillion come to agreement? You find some meeting point in between. The point at which the car is worth more to me than the money I will give for it. And the money I will give for the car is worth more to him than the car. The resulting terms are called the price. It's the same with all markets. We can see that it is perfectly absurd to attempt to fashion national policy around the interests of only one party to an exchange. To try to keep house prices high and rising cheats the first-time buyer. To keep them low cheats the current owner. To keep grain prices high helps grain producers but hurts grain consumers. Some gas companies might like high gas prices, but consumers hate them. On the other hand, gas prices forced lower by dictate might thrill consumers, but producers might end up hurting so much that they shut down. That helps no one. The only real answer here is to let the free market rule, which is another way of saying that people should be free to come to their own agreements about the prices they are willing to pay or accept for this and that. Those points of agreement should be as flexible as human valuation itself. That is to say, we should be free to change our minds, with each exchange taken as an end in itself, with no bearing on future points of agreement. This is not only fitting with the needs of freedom. Any attempt to force prices to do this or that does, in fact, impinge on our freedom to negotiate. But it is also essential to a well-functioning economy. That's because the price is heavily influenced by factors such as resource availability, the subjective valuations of consumers, and the profitability of the undertaking in light of accounting costs. In the end, the books have to be in the black. The prices that are accepted in the market must sustain this state of affairs. Even in mega industries like oil, the difference between revenue and expenses can be surprisingly thin. Even small regulatory and tax changes can drive companies of all sizes to bankruptcy. Prices are crucial to the wise apportioning of resources in a world with unlimited wants and limited resources. Prices affect the way in which we use things, whether conserving them or throwing them away. You will note that higher gas prices change the way you make judgments about going places and doing things. This is a good thing. Higher prices signal the need to conserve, and without unworkable mandates from the government, and from the producer's point of view, prevailing prices provide crucial information concerning the forecasting of future profits, and hence today's investment decisions. Now we must address the matter of justice. We think we know what a just price is, but do we really? And what actually constitutes justice in prices? What comes first to my own mind is the parable of the treasure in the field. An unknowing landowner is just living day to day with no knowledge that there is a treasure in the backyard. Some other guy, however, has knowledge of the treasure, so he sells everything he has, knocks on the owner's door, and nonchalantly says, "You know, I would be glad to buy your property." The owner sells. But let's be clear here. The owner did not know that there was a treasure back there. 
nor did the buyers say a word about it, lest the price he had to pay go sky high. Today, people might say that the owner got ripped off. But Jesus doesn't say this. He holds up the buyer as wise and moral. Interesting, isn't it? Is there justice in this exchange? Most certainly. And why? Because they agreed voluntarily. That's all there is to it. There is no way to observe an existing price and declare it just or unjust. As St. Bernardino, a shrewd observer of economic affairs, said, Water is usually cheap where it is abundant, but it can happen that on a mountain or in another place water is scarce, not abundant. It may well happen that water is more highly esteemed than gold because gold is more abundant in this place than water. The late scholastics, followers of St. Thomas Aquinas, all agreed that the just price had no fixed position. It all depends on the common estimation of traders. Luis de Molina summed up the point. A price is considered just or unjust not because of the nature of the things themselves, this would lead us to value them according to their nobility or perfection, but due to their ability to serve human utility. But this is the way in which they are appreciated by men. They therefore command a price in the market and in exchanges. For more on the views of the schoolmen on prices, see Faith and Liberty, The Economic Thought of the Late Scholastics by Alejandro Chafuen. Now, there are ways for a price to become a matter of injustice. It can mask fraud. The prices can result from or be influenced by some act of force, such as price controls or taxation or restrictions on supply and demand. Behind each of these, we find coercion, a body of people who are mandating or restricting in a way that is incompatible with free choice. Arguably, this is not just. We can conclude, then, that to the extent we complain about unjust gasoline prices, we need to look at the restrictions on refineries or exploration or drilling or examine the role that high gas taxes have in pushing up prices beyond what they would be under conditions of free exchange. And as for those who believe that all prices should move in ways that benefit their own particular economic interests at the expense of everyone else, don't confuse your agenda with a matter of justice. Prevailing prices in a business-based economy are a reflection of cooperative arrangements involving people with free will. Chapter 22 The Economics of Here to There January 17, 2007 Not being a television watcher, I was amazed to discover from watching an hour or two of commercials this weekend that there is a little pill you can take that will turn your body from portly and weak to thin and strong in a matter of months, if not weeks. And how much better will be the eventual results if you acquire this thing called the bean, which looks like a blow-up pool toy, but is really the key to flattening your belly and giving you abs of extraordinary beauty. Also, there is this cream that will triple the amount of moisture in your hands, and there is a gel that will stop hair loss, and also, it turns out I would have a greater ability to concentrate if I ate a good breakfast that included frosted mini-wheats, each of which talks and has a charming personality. 
And there's this nose spray that will help me breathe better and play trumpet like a pro, which will thereby earn my son's admiration, just like on TV. Such are the claims we encounter minute by minute on the tube, advertisements on which millions and billions are spent, just so that we will buy this instead of that. And the socialist says, What a ghastly waste it all is. They ask, what is wrong with the economic system as it exists that vast sums of wealth are consumed to get us to believe the improbable when, at the same time, whole populations around the world suffer without access to clean water and enough food to feed children? And so, they propose a global regime to expropriate the capitalist class. And yet, it is not as if the capitalists welcome the chance to spend vast sums on television advertising. How great it would be if all a capitalist had to do was to create something, and that alone would cause the multitudes to flock to the warehouse and buy. Alas, that is not the way the world works. There are multiple competing ends for how we spend our money. The first step that is required to persuade those resources to be used in one way as versus another is to have the knowledge that a particular product exists. The second step is to persuade the potential buyer to make a choice in favor of a particular product. It is the necessity of human choice in a world in which information is scarce that makes advertising a feature of our world. If they knew in advance that the millions they spend this way would be for naught, they would use the resources in other ways. The boss could increase his own salary. The company might lower its prices to undercut the competition or attract better workers through higher pay. The resources it requires to promote your product are some of the most painful ways to spend a buck. It is pure speculation as to whether there will be a payoff. Even a temporary payoff says nothing about the future. What the entire critique of advertising misses is the crucial and even decisive economic issue that is solved by the principle of marketing. How does a product or a service go from being a good idea or even a physical possibility to being available for people and available for consumption? Here is the major issue that has never been solved by any other system but capitalism. And capitalism solves it in a way that is wealth generating and leads to constant improvements. Thanks to the advent of mass blogging, many more people are acquainted with this issue than ever before. Let's say you take what is for most people a big and exciting step of creating a blog. There are so many sites now that make it easy. You sign up, you fiddle around with the look and feel, you add links, and the all-important About Me page. You are ready to go. You write your first post, thoughts you find funny, profound, insightful, or otherwise compelling in some way. Submit, and voila! You are published in a medium that is accessible to the entire world. Who can believe it? The thrill doesn't last long because you suddenly realize something that had not yet presented itself. Only your family is reading this. Maybe. It's true that anyone in the world can access it, but why should anyone want to? How are people ever going to find out about it? How can you be sure that people are going to come back again and again? 
This is a striking problem mainly because it is something that hadn't actually occurred to you before. You created a beautiful product. You could create a profound post, but you must then persuade people to read it. You might have read somewhere that the key to blogging is to do it often, so you blog and blog. You post three times or even ten times per day. You keep this up for weeks, even months. Exhausted, you check your stats. They show no increase in readership. Still, only your family is reading, or at least they claim to be reading. You then turn to other means. You link. You beg for links. You turn on trackbacks. You try boosting your search engine ranking. Finally, you take the step. You buy a spot on Google Ads. Then things begin to happen, and then you marvel at how much time you have spent on this project. It seems that you have spent ten times as much time promoting than you ever spent writing your blog. And yet, what is the point of writing if you have no readers? In this way, average people are beginning to see the great hidden cost of capitalist production, getting from here to there. And take note that with blogging, the problem of distribution is already solved. The final product is delivered via a click. Imagine if you had a book or a tire or an air conditioner part to sell. That presents all sorts of new problems. You must produce something physical. How many? You must have a warehouse. How big? You must be prepared to process credit cards, do the accounts, meet a payroll. And you must do all of this not after you have the revenue, but before. It all seems like a wild act of faith. It is indeed. And keep in mind that the costs of distribution are not only a problem that faces the capitalist class; it also confronts the charity worker. What if I made a massive dinner and set it on the table and proclaimed that it was reserved for the poor of the world? Well, there are a few steps missing, aren't there? No matter what your ideology, the reality that you must do something to get the food to those who need it is inescapable. The costs of promotion and distribution are far more vast than the costs of production alone. In order to be willing to undertake such a thing and bear such high costs, you must really believe in your product, or at least believe that you have entered into some kind of sustainable undertaking. The prospect of bankruptcy looms large and relentlessly. Am I saying the inventor of the bean really believes that it can give you fabulous abs? Most certainly, and if used correctly, it probably does. The same goes for the hand cream company, the mini wheats maker, and the stop hair loss capitalist. These people are indeed believers. There are such things as hoaxes, to be sure, but capitalism tends to discourage them by imposing the cost of promotion and distribution entirely on the producer, while the choice to buy or not buy lies solely with the consumer. But why must it be tacky and unbearable to so many of us? Well, let's be blunt. Business is trying to reach the masses. Mises explains, business propaganda must be obtrusive and blatant. It is its aim to attract the attention of slow people, to rouse latent wishes, to entice men to substitute innovation for inert clinging to traditional routine. In order to succeed, advertising must be adjusted to the mentality of the people courted.
It must suit their tastes and speak their idiom. Advertising is shrill, noisy, coarse, puffing, because the public does not react to dignified illusions. It is the bad taste of the public that forces the advertisers to display bad taste in their publicity campaigns. The art of advertising has evolved into a branch of applied psychology, a sister discipline of pedagogy. Like all things designed to suit the taste of the masses, advertising is repellent to people of delicate feeling. A sister discipline of pedagogy? Yes, indeed it is. It is also art, and those with delicate feeling need to learn to appreciate it for what it is. They don't have to believe a word of it. Decline to drink the potion to make you thin. Refuse the breakfast that will make you concentrate. Eschew the hand cream that will restore moisture. Be as skeptical as you want and instead save every penny. Turn off the television if you hate it and sit in your perfect environment and listen to Gregorian chant. But don't push for a system that would deny producers the right to persuade others and don't deny others the right to make a choice for themselves. Chapter 23 The Pope and the Cause of Freedom October 24, 2001 Ten years ago, Pope John Paul II released Centesimus Annus, an encyclical at once subtle and sweeping that addressed the future of the post-communist countries of Europe and the general subjects of freedom, society, and faith. The document represented the fullest embrace that the Catholic Church has given in the modern period to classical liberal ideas, particularly as they apply in the economic sphere. In Centesimus, the Pope argues that socialism failed, not just because it was bad economics, but mainly because it rejected the truth about the human person. The state under socialism treats the individual not with dignity, but as a molecule within the social organism, so that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the functioning of the socio-economic mechanism. As an alternative, the Pope recommends the business economy and the free market as the most efficient instrument for utilizing resources and effectively responding to needs. These observations are the conclusions of an in-depth discourse on the structure of society itself with reflections on the place of intermediating institutions, private property, the price system, the division of labor, the family, and how all of them relate to the role of faith in sustaining a social commitment to liberty. Pope John Paul II draws attention to the ways in which the commercial sector, rooted in voluntarism and cooperative work, sustains solidarity, which comes not through coercion, but through cooperation and exchange. Centissimus revives the idea of subsidiarity, the view that problems are best solved by those people and institutions closest to them, and that outside interventions should take place only when necessary and only on a temporary basis. The coupling of these two ideas of solidarity and subsidiarity draws attention to the unlimited possibilities for human cooperation under freedom and the severe limits that must always be enforced against the power of the state. The Pope is blunt on the nature of the total state. In totalitarian and authoritarian regimes, the principle that force predominates over reason was carried to the extreme. 
Man was compelled to submit to a conception of reality imposed on him by coercion, and not reached by virtue of his own reason and the exercise of his own freedom. This principle must be overturned, and total recognition must be given to the rights of the human conscience, which is bound only to the truth, both natural and revealed. The recognition of these rights represents the primary foundation of every authentically free political order. He offers severe criticism of the democratic state. Authentic democracy is possible only in a state ruled by law and on the basis of a correct conception of the human person. If there is no ultimate truth to guide and direct political activity, then ideas and convictions can easily be manipulated for reasons of power. As history demonstrates, a democracy without values easily turns into open or thinly disguised totalitarianism. End of the welfare state. By intervening directly and depriving society of its responsibility, the social assistance state leads to a loss of human energies and an inordinate increase of public agencies, which are dominated more by bureaucratic ways of thinking than by concern for serving their clients, and which are accompanied by an enormous increase in spending. The document is just as severe in its attack on the warfare state. I myself, on the occasion of the recent tragic war in the Persian Gulf, repeated the cry, "Never again war!" No, never again war, which destroys the lives of innocent people, teaches how to kill, throws into upheaval even the lives of those who do the killing, and leaves behind a trail of resentment and hatred, thus making it all the more difficult to find a just solution of the very problem which provoked the war. The church is not a policy think tank, nor an international planning agency like the IMF or World Bank, and thus warns that it has no models to present. Civil society must develop organically from a healthy culture. Models that are real and truly effective can only arise within the framework of different historical situations through the efforts of those who responsibly confront concrete problems in all their social, economic, political, and cultural aspects, as these interact with one another. For such a task, the Church offers her social teaching as an indispensable and ideal orientation. As versus the imposition of a particular political and economic structure, the Church echoes classical liberalism's claim that free societies, when circumscribed by individual moral conviction, are essentially self-ordering. Not only is it wrong from the ethical point of view to disregard human nature, which is made for freedom, but in practice it is impossible to do so. Where society is so organized as to reduce arbitrarily or even suppress the sphere in which freedom is legitimately exercised, the result is that the life of society becomes progressively disorganized and goes into decline. Among the self-ordering systems in society is the commercial sector, which is based on private property, profit. When a firm makes a profit, this means that productive factors have been properly employed and corresponding human needs have been duly satisfied. The division of labor, entrepreneurship, and the business firm. There is another reason the Catholic Church isn't proposing a political blueprint. Even in its social teaching, 
the Pope is focused on the central mission of the Church, which is not building the kingdom of God on earth, but evangelizing souls. The entire approach is oriented toward guarding human dignity and creating the social conditions that best enable man to work out salvation. If Woodrow Wilson wanted to make a world safe for democracy, and George W. Bush wants to make the world safe from evil, John Paul II has an agenda that is more politically modest, but more spiritually challenging. He wants to make societies safe for the spread of the gospel. He concludes that the best approach is a society of free work, of enterprise, and of participation. It's no wonder that, on its release, Centesimus Anus was something of a new phenomenon. It was front-page news in the New York Times, and over the decade, the debates and discussions of the encyclical have filled many volumes. Its lessons and intellectual orientation are still being discussed and discovered, as are its intellectual antecedents, which include the Austrian School of Economics. Lacking in most of the discussion that has been a reiteration of a basic tool for understanding the structure of social teaching itself, what is its status, and to what extent is it regarded as authoritative and binding? There are three general categories of argument in centesimus, principles, historical observations, and applications. Only the principles are said to be binding on the conscience because these involve the exercise of her teaching authority. As for analysis of history and the new requirements for evangelization, they do not fall per se within the magisterium's specific domain. Among the principles, dignity and rights of the human person, solidarity through human cooperation, subsidiarity and limits of state power, the advancement of the common good, the moral imperative of freedom and peace, the obligation to justice and charity, the universality of truth. Among the observations, the failure of socialism, the success of the business economy, the advances in economic sciences, the problems inherent in democracy unhinged from morality. Among the applications, the rule of law, the productivity of individual initiative, dangers of bureaucratization, the centrality of intermediating institutions. Breaking the document down this way, the list could be much longer, helps to account for how the Catholic Church can at once claim that its statements are not contingent on time and place, and, on the other hand, only recently have given such full embrace to certain free market ideals. It's true that past statements on economics have stumbled, and even Centesimus Anus errs in its recommendations for a minimum wage, for example. These are applications that fall outside the teaching authority of the Church and are thus subject to change. To fully appreciate the role of this encyclical in the history of our time, consider two points. One, the Pope played a direct role in undermining the legitimacy of the communist states and thus bringing about their collapse. And two, so surprised were Western intellectuals by the collapse that precious little work had been done to prepare for a transition to a post-communist era. When this Pope spoke on the matter, it created shockwaves that are still being felt today. 
It is sometimes observed that ministers and priests face a special temptation to despair. And the same could be said of great scholars and intellectuals, because they are forever preaching principles that people themselves will never live up to. Certainly neither the U.S. nor the post-communist societies come close to embracing the full vision presented here. But it is the role of ideals to keep us on the right path and warn of the dangers along the way. It is here where centesimus annus succeeds the most. Technology, Chapter 24, Authors, Beware of Copyright, January 21, 2009 when an author signs a publication contract, insofar as it contains strict and traditional copyright notices, he is pretty much signing his life away. It used to be that the publisher would maintain control only so long as the book is in print. Today, with digital printing, this means forever, your lifetime plus 70 years. During this time, you can't even quote significant portions of your own writing without permission from the publisher, and you could find yourself paying the publisher for the rights. You can't read your own book aloud and sell the results. You certainly can't give a journal a chapter. You could try to be sneaky and change the text a bit, right? Wrong. They've thought of that. You will own and control new matter, but the old matter is still the private possession of the man. What if the publisher isn't marketing your book? You can yell and scream, but they don't have to answer. In fact, most publishers have a system for dealing with authors. It's called voicemail. Emails go unanswered. You're done for. You sold your soul and you can't get it back. Not within your lifetime. Your creation, which copyright is designed to protect, is now the possession of someone else. This follows the trajectory as laid out in Michelle Boldrin and David Levine's smashing new book, Against Intellectual Monopoly. As they explain, this racket began in the 17th century when government instituted the idea of ownership of ideas precisely so that the government could crush ideas it didn't like. Only approved authors got the stamp of approval. Same with art. But then the authors and creators rose up and demanded their rights in the 18th century, and the copyright idea was transferred from government to private parties, who were then in a position to crush competitors. In the 20th century, this changed again when the right was transferred from individuals to corporations. In the digital age that exists simultaneous to the most tyrannical copyright laws ever, this is creating an intolerable situation that amounts to a form of involuntary servitude. Creators write and paint and watch corporate interlopers doom their work to obscurity. The creator hoped to make a dent in the universe, but only sees his material land in the recycle bin of history. Yes, it is done by contract, contract backed by the power of the state. So why do authors put up with it? mostly because it is a convention, and they haven't known about alternatives. Also, they are bribed by the ego-exploiting promise of royalties which never arrive. The practical effect can be devastating. There is, for example, a book on Austrian business cycles that was published some years ago, and it is in print from an academic house, but in print only in the most technical sense. 
It is essentially unaffordable for anyone but a state-funded library with an inelastic demand curve. The Mises Institute wants to bring it back in paperback and make it affordable. Nope, can't happen. The publisher says that it will do it for us at a very high price with virtually no discount. They are in their legal rights to do this. Of course, it makes the whole project completely unviable. No deal. The authors are cornered. There is nothing they can do. There is nothing we can do. A great Austrian book, written over the course of ten years, is consigned to the dusty shelves of a handful of libraries for at least another seventy years. This is only one case of a hundred that I've seen. It is even worse when the author is dead. The publisher may or may not have handed back the rights to the manuscript. Those rights may or may not have been transferred. They may or may not have been handed on in the will, or perhaps they are in probate. Yes, a potential new publisher can hunt this down to find out who among six billion potential owners actually controls rights to this manuscript. A lawyer is always glad to spend vast amounts of your money doing research. He may or may not come up with an answer you can trust. Meanwhile, you have spent the equivalent of a first print run. Most potential publishers will say, "To heck with it!" Again, you have failed to be immortalized by your work. This goes for art and musical compositions, and even recordings of your band or voice. Thanks to federal law, since the 1980s, all this material is bound up in a thicket of law, and this thicket will not evaporate for more than 100 years. This is what the intellectual property of copyright has wrought. So I say to all authors, please look at your contracts. Don't sign your life away. Publish on the condition of Creative Commons. Claim your rights back as a creator and an author. How does this work? You have to copyright your work, if only to prevent others from claiming copyright and thereby binding all other living persons, including you, from publishing it. Once you claim copyright. Add that it is published under the Creative Commons License 3.0. This rids your manuscript or song or painting of copyright's provision of doom, the requirement that only one institution can control it. In other words, it makes your creation part of the free market. It can be posted, recorded, shown, photographed, celebrated by one and all forever. Isn't this why you create in the first place? Isn't this what drives you to write, paint, photograph, sing, or whatever? You want to make a difference. You want credit for your work. This permits this. Old-fashioned copyright is nothing but a form of modern tyranny in the digital age. It has no future. Chapter twenty-five. If you believe in IP, how do you teach others? November sixteenth, two thousand nine. Some Harvard professors are taking very seriously their intellectual property rights and have claimed copyright to the ideas that they spread in their classrooms. What prompted this was a website in which students posted their notes to help other students. The professors have cracked down. It might have been enough to legislate against this behavior in particular. Instead, they wrapped their objection in the great fallacy of our age. The professor owns his ideas, and they may not be spread without his permission. 
This action has opened up a can of worms, and now other universities have taken up the puzzling question: How do you at once enforce intellectual property and uphold the ideal of a university, which is, after all, about teaching and spreading ideas to others? The problem is a serious one that highlights the absurdity of the notion that an idea, infinitely reproducible and thereby not scarce, and also taught with the overt purpose of gaining adherence among students, can be somehow contained and restrained once it is unleashed. The only way to retain exclusive possession of an idea is never to share it with anyone. But of course, that not only cuts against the grain of teaching. It is contrary to the human impulse for bouncing ideas off others and still claiming some credit for innovation. There are two possible ways out of this problem in a digital age: open source or IP. The open source model has been adopted by MIT, which has made its entire curriculum open source and freely available online. This is a fairly straightforward approach, which finally gets down to the reality that what MIT is charging for is not so much the education, but the degree itself. Clarity at last. Another approach is the one taken by Harvard and, most explicitly, by the University of Texas, which has suggested that professors make the following contract with students: My lectures are protected by state common law and federal copyright law. They are my own original expression, and I record them at the same time that I deliver them in order to secure protection. Whereas you are authorized to take notes in class, thereby creating a derivative work from my lecture, the authorization extends only to making one set of notes for your own personal use and no other use. You are not authorized to record my lectures, to provide your notes to anyone else, or to make any commercial use of them without express prior permission from me. You can make no other use of what you learn, really. That sort of smashes the whole point of education, doesn't it? The goal of the university is to spread knowledge, not to grant one-time use for what you learn in the classroom. The aim of an individual student is to gain knowledge that is used in every possible way for a lifetime, and to pass the ideas on to others. In fact, what the contract requires is impossible. It is not as if our bodies are equipped with hard drives that can be wiped clean after the semester is over. In any case, even if we were so equipped, that would defeat the whole purpose of taking classes and paying universities for offering them. I don't find this struggle ridiculous in the slightest. Once you posit the ownership of ideas already made public, this problem becomes inevitable. Of course, the institution of teaching has been around since the ancient world, and yet this issue has never really presented itself before. But since the publishing mercantilists first asserted that property rights could be applied to ideas, the problem of what to do about teaching has been waiting in the wings. The advent of digital media forces the issue because ideas, once stated, can spread globally in an instant. I am further struck by this problem in light of a fantastic new book on Ayn Rand called *Goddess of the Market* by Jennifer Burns. The author isn't quite zeroed in on this issue as such, but she provides enough information to document the fact that for Rand, the issue of her intellectual property became increasingly important throughout her life. 
She documents how Rand's royalties from her work, Night of January 16th, gave her the first taste of financial independence, and how she later came to believe that she had not received enough. With each successive negotiation for book royalties and film rights, her terms became ever higher and ever more strict. Now, in a free market, there is nothing wrong with an upfront payment for first-run rights to a book or movie. It is by being first past the post that profits are made. This was how artists were paid in the Renaissance, not through royalties, as if the artist owns the image or work, but through a payment that comes with granting some third party the opportunity to be the first to reveal the work. In the 19th century, for example, British authors would sell their manuscripts to American publishers who could not copyright the work. There was no such thing as international copyright in those days. It turned out that the authors made more money through this means of payment than through royalties in their own country. So on this score, Rand had perfectly sound instincts. A person should charge as much as he or she can for first run. But Rand's rationale was rooted in this modern notion of intellectual property, a theory shared by nearly all her contemporaries on which she was never once challenged. In fact, to a great extent, her philosophy exalted the role and rights of the creator more than any, probably in the history of ideas. This is a great contribution, but she took the notion too far. For Rand, intellectual rights trumped real rights. This comes through not only in her writings. The fountainhead can be given a property rights spin, but ultimately it is about intellectual rights. But also in her personal relationships. Here, property and her ideas became a source of conflict with friends such as Isabel Patterson, with whom Rand was friends for many years. Tensions entered into the friendship when Rand accused Patterson of taking her ideas in the writing of God of the Machine. Patterson responded that Rand's contribution to the ideas in this book was minimal. They wrote back and forth and argued over specific instances of who said what to whom. They sorted through events in their associations, attempting to reconstruct them and divvy the ideas. In truth, what had happened to Rand and Patterson is called a conversation. One person says something, and another elaborates, which prompts new thoughts, new directions, new comments, a consensus, which then gets interrupted by new thoughts, points of departure, new elaborations, a new consensus, and so on. And if you know how Rand was, staying up all night in these detailed discussions of theory, you know that it would be simply impossible to sort out who owned what. You can try this yourself with a friend. Talk for 15 minutes and then attempt to draw an ownership map of ideas. See if you can come to a consensus. Then see what the attempt does to your friendship. Reading through the history of Rand's relationships with people, we find that this dynamic was pervasive. Again, I'm not saying this as accusation, but merely observing that it is an extension of her theory concerning the ownership of ideas. This is particularly a problem for a theory of life that exalts independent thinking and creativity. What if the idea that one should be independent and creative itself actually came from someone else? One must constantly acknowledge one's debts. And, moreover, 
one should be cautious about remixing the ideas, lest the property right in the idea of being creative be stained and marred. Marrying the idea of intellectual property to the notion of being independent generates extreme dependence and mandatory intellectual compliance. The famed role of Nathaniel Brandon in the Rand Circle was not to be only a teacher of her theories, but also an enforcer of Rand's intellectual property rights, which involved excluding people as much as it did including people. He was caught on the horns of a dilemma in many ways. On the one hand, he was seeking followers for Rand's ideas. On the other hand, he wanted to protect her ideas from being stolen. He probably wanted to maintain his own monopolistic possession of them. What kind of person, then, are you willing to tolerate as part of the inner circle? It would have to be a person who would repeat the ideas of Rand exactly, without alteration, and constantly cite Rand for her innovation and assert her right to the idea. Taken far enough, one can imagine the result. A drone army of people who footnoted nearly every phrase coming out of their mouths. It was in the pursuit of intellectual property that Nathaniel intervened in objectivist clubs to prevent them from using the word objectivist, to prevent them from using quotes from John Galt, to prevent them even from advertising lectures on the topic by students of her ideas. As Burns demonstrates, but without clarity of casual explanation, the movement for Rand's ideas only really took off after Nathaniel Brandon had been cast out of the inner circle. The monopoly on her ideas could no longer be maintained. They were set free, not fully open source, but at least far less restricted, and so they flourished. Rand was not entirely happy about this transition. Her impression was not entirely invalid that people were robbing her of her thoughts. Rand was having a huge influence. Like the professors discussed above, however, she turned away from an open-source model toward IP enforcement. Of the Libertarian Party, for example, she wrote, It's a bad sign for an allegedly pro-capitalist party to start by stealing ideas. But this raises the question. Would it have been better had the Libertarians not been influenced by Rand? From her perspective, yes. It was even worse when ideas were stolen and then mixed with ideas with which she disagreed. The rest of the story played out as we might expect. She ended up feeling robbed and looted by everyone who was influenced by her. My own reading of her biography is that her belief that her ideas were property led to her experiencing unnecessary grief. After all, it didn't have to be this way. She might have been proud of her role as one of the most influential intellectual forces in the second half of the 20th century. Lacking any university position and a professorship, she actually managed to make the whole of the English-speaking world her classroom. But rather than be thrilled at what she had done, she had the opposite reaction, which is exactly what one might expect from a deeply flawed conception of intellectual property. What Rand went through is precisely what these Harvard professors are going through, deep ambiguity concerning the application of property rights to their thoughts. Eventually, they will have to come to terms with it. It is the MIT model, or retirement from teaching, or a lifetime of bitterness. 
The MIT model is the model of the ancient world and every university environment ever since. And it is the only way to deal with a digital society in which every thought becomes globalized upon utterance. Chapter 26 Is Intellectual Property the Key to Success? July 5, 2007 one of the greatest tragedies of intellectual property law is how it generates intellectual confusion among successful business people. Many are under the impression, even when it is not true, that they owe their wealth to copyright, trademarks, and patents, and not necessarily to their business savvy. For this reason, they defend intellectual property as if it were the very lifeblood of their business operations. They fail to give primary credit where it is due, to their own ingenuity, willingness to take a risk, and their market-based activities generally. This is often an empirically incorrect judgment on their part, and it carries with it the tragedy of crediting the state for the accomplishments that they are actually due to their own entrepreneurial activities. Certainly there is no shortage of narratives to back up this misimpression. Countless business histories of the U.S. observe how profits come in the wake of patents and thereby assume a causal relationship. Under this assumption, the history of American enterprise is less a story of heroic risk and reward and more a story of the decision of patent clerks and copyright attorneys. As a result, many people think that the reason the United States grew so quickly in the 19th century was due to its intellectual property protection, and they assume that protecting ideas is no different from protecting real property, which, in fact, is completely different. A clue to the copyright fallacy should be obvious from wandering through a typical bookstore chain you will see racks and racks of classic books presented with beautiful covers, fancy binding, and in a variety of sizes and shapes. The texts therein are public domain, which isn't a legal category as such. It only means the absence of copyright protection. But they sell. They sell well. And no, the authors are not misidentified on them. The Bronte sisters are still the authors of Jane Eyre and Withering Heights. Victor Hugo still wrote Les Miserables. Mark Twain wrote Tom Sawyer. The much-predicted disaster of an anti-IP world is nowhere in evidence. There are still profits, gains from trade, and credit is given where credit is due. Why is this? Quite simply, the bookstore has gone to the trouble of bringing the book to market. It paid the producer for the book and made an entrepreneurial decision to take a risk that people will buy it. Sure, anyone could have done it, but the fact is that not everyone has. The company made the good available in a manner that suits consumer tastes. In other words, with enterprise comes success. It is no more or less simple than that. IP has nothing to do with it. So it would be in a completely free market, which is to say, a world without IP. But sometimes businessmen themselves get confused. Let's consider the case of an ice cream entrepreneur with a hypothetical brand name, Georgia Cream. The company enjoys some degree of success and then decides to trademark its brand name, meaning that it now enjoys the monopoly on the use of the name Georgia Cream. 
And let's say that the company creates a flavor called peach pizzazz, which is a great success. So it copyrights the recipe so that no one can publish it without the company's permission. It then realizes that the special quality of its ice cream is due to its mixing technique, so it applies for and receives a patent on that. So this company now has three monopolies all sewn up. Is that enough to ensure success? Of course not. It must do good business, meaning that it must economize, innovate, distribute, and advertise. The company does all these things and then goes from success to success. If you suggest to the founder and CEO that we should get rid of intellectual property law, you will elicit a sense of panic. That would completely destroy my business. How so? Anyone could just come along and claim to be Georgia Cream, steal our recipe for peach pizzazz, duplicate our mixing technique, and then we'd be sunk. Do you see what is happening here? A small change that would not threaten the very life of the business is indirectly being credited, by implication, for being the very life of the business. If that were true, then it would not be business prowess that made this company, but government privilege. And that is emphatically not true in this case. The repeal of intellectual property legislation would do nothing to remove from the business its capacity to create, innovate, advertise, market, and distribute. The repeal of IP might create for it an additional cost of doing business, namely efforts to ensure that customers are aware of the difference between the genuine product and impersonators. This is a cost of business that every enterprise has to bear. Patents and trademarks have done nothing to keep Gucci and Prada and Rolex impersonators at bay, but neither have the impersonators killed the main business. If anything, they might have helped, since imitation is the best form of flattery. In any case, the cost associated with keeping an eye on imitators exists, whether IP is legally protected or not. To be sure, some businesses owe their existing profits to patents. Which they then use to beat their competition over the head, but there are costs involved in this process as well, such as millions in legal fees. Big companies spend millions building up war chests of patents that they use to fight off or forestall lawsuits from other companies. They agree to back down and cross license to each other after spending millions on attorneys. And no surprise, just as with minimum wage or pro-union legislation. The IP laws don't really hurt the larger companies, but rather the smaller businesses who can't afford million-dollar patent suit defenses. The internet age has taught that it is ultimately impossible to enforce IP. It is akin to attempting to ban alcohol or tobacco. It can't work. It only succeeds in creating criminality where none really need exist. By granting exclusive rights to the first firm to jump through the hoops, it ends up harming rather than promoting competition. But some may object that protecting IP is no different from protecting regular property. That is not so. Real property is scarce. The subjects of IP are not scarce, as Stefan Kinsella explains. Images, ideas, sounds. Arrangements of letters on a page; these can be reproduced infinitely. For that reason, they can't be considered to be owned. 
Merchants are free to attempt to create artificial scarcity, and that is what happens when a company keeps its codes private or photographers put watermarks on their images online. Proprietary and open-source products can live and prosper side by side, as we learn from any drugstore that offers both branded and generic goods inches apart on the shelves. But what you are not permitted to do in a free market is use violence in an attempt to create an artificial scarcity, which is what all that IP legislation really does. Benjamin Tucker said in the 19th century that if you want your invention to yourself, the only way is to keep it off the market. That remains true today. So consider a world without trademark, copyright, or patents. It would still be a world with innovation, perhaps far more of it. And yes, there would still be profits due to those who are entrepreneurial. Perhaps there would be a bit less profit for litigators and IP lawyers. But is this a bad thing? Chapter twenty-seven, books online and off, March twenty-second, two thousand four. Many people find themselves mystified as to why the Mises Institute puts books online for free that it is also trying to sell. For example, here is Llewellyn H. Rockwell Jr.'s "Speaking of Liberty." Here is Hans Hermann Hoppe's "The Myth of National Defense," which you can also purchase. And the most accessed of all, Ludwig von Mises' "Human Action" in many different formats with an interactive index. Even as the offline scholars edition remains a bestseller on Mises.org. Below is a detailed account of how we arrived at the policy that as many books as possible should be made available online and offline, and why we think it would be a good idea for all publishers to do the same. Of course, Amazon.com has slowly come to this policy as well, and no one watches the relationship between information and sales as closely. At this point, they are limited only by a publisher's reluctance to let go. And here we are speaking of new books and issues of marketing and sales. The case for making older volumes fully available for purposes of education is even more obvious. The point is to expand the market and not assume a fixed number of consumers. Books online and offline reinforce the viability of each other, just as movies and theaters boost movies and rental, and free radio helps the market for CDs for purchase. It takes some thought and entrepreneurial judgment to understand why, but the history of technological development informs the case. As one commentator put it on the Mises blog, "Nor did ideas written down in scrolls or illuminated manuscripts undermine the teachers, gurus, nor did knowledge in mass-printed books undermine schools, colleges." The topic comes up because two weeks ago the Mises Institute released *Man, Economy, and State* with *Power and Market*, by far our most time-consuming and expensive publication project in our 22-year history. At fifty dollars, this hardbound, 1,550-page treatise on economics is an incredible bargain, but still expensive for any book. At the same time, the Mises Institute released a page with the full text of the book and table of contents in PDF to accomplish the step-by-step -step development of the full text in HTML. 
A number of readers commented that they believed this policy was generous but essentially nuts, and helpfully advised us that if we knew what was good for sales, we would take down this page immediately. Rather than take it down, it is our hope that people will put it in their favorites list and forward it far and wide. As a non-profit dedicated to getting the word out about Austrian economics and serving many people in the world who are interested in learning, it only makes sense that we pursue every viable means of doing so. To have the means of providing something as powerful as this book for free and not do so would amount to deliberately withholding the product pending payment from people who may or may not have the means of paying. That prospect of withholding ideas when it would be easy to make them available has to make every non-profit that cares about its mission somewhat squeamish. There is nothing wrong with making a profit, but if that were the sole purpose, and if doing so was financially viable, there would be no point in the non-profit structure that has existed since the ancient world. For more on non-profits as a market institution, see Rothbard's The Myth of Neutral Taxation. We gladly offer these texts at no charge, simply because we believe that this is part of our core mission. If that sounds implausibly high-minded, there are other considerations at work. There was much confusion in the early days of the web about whether online viewing would displace books. It didn't happen. In fact, the broad development of the web as a vehicle for commercial search and delivery has actually led to a boom in book sales, both new and used. Also, experience suggests that online and offline books are different goods that serve different purposes. Quick reference versus deep reading, quote checking versus extended study, etc. What's more, these different purposes are complementary. On and offline books are complements, like bacon and eggs, not substitutes like bacon and sausage. All of this means that one does not necessarily cut into one's sales by offering the book online for free. By showing people what is inside the book, it is possible to increase sales of the offline book. The very existence of the online version means that the offline version becomes more valuable because now one can copy and paste quotations, easily refer back to the passage, even when the book is not in hand, or send URLs around to friends or post them on the blog to make points. These days, if a book is not online, it faces an additional hurdle that it otherwise would not face. Not substitutes or complements, but tied goods, like piano strings and keys. Here is a case in point. For some years, Misesians have wondered about the status of Mises' wonderful book, Omnipotent Government, 1944. It was the first, and still remains, the most masterful study of the economics and politics of German National Socialism, perhaps the most anti-Nazi book published in its time. It demonstrates that the Nazi ideology was a species of orthodox socialist theory and thereby corrects one of the most pervasive political errors of our time, that Nazism and communism represent opposite sides of an ideological continuum. In any case, the point is that the book has long deserved far more attention than it has received. When it first appeared in 1944 from Yale University Press, 
reviewers saw it as a classic and expected it to have a huge impact. But many on the left and right had every reason to make sure Mises' book did not achieve a wider readership. For years, we wanted to do something to correct for this. Meanwhile, however, the current publisher would not allow the text to be put online through the Mises Institute. Many of Mises' books have been online and, as a result, were being referred to and quoted and discussed and purchased as never before. But not omnipotent government. It was not getting the attention it deserved and, indeed, faced the prospect of forever living in the shadows of those books that are online. After three years of letters, emails, and phone calls, we finally persuaded the publisher to let us go ahead. But we could only do so on the condition that we compensate the publisher in advance for all the lost sales they were sure that they would absorb. Their attitude is somewhat understandable. They figured, why would anyone buy the book now that it is being given away for free? They demanded an upfront payment. And so we paid, essentially leasing the book from the publisher. And, after lots of formatting and proofing work, we put it online here. What happened was precisely the reverse of what the publisher expected. Instead of lost sales, the sales of the book shot up. In a few weeks since the text went online, more copies of this book left our warehouse than during the whole of the last decade. Omnipotent Government is now a top seller in the Mises.org catalog. The publisher not only obtained the leasing fee from our offices, but suddenly enjoyed a flood of new orders for the book from us. Most gratifying is how quickly ideas are disseminated in these times. Already, commentators and bloggers have noted the parallel between the modern protectionist argument about outsourcing and the same arguments made by Nazi protectionists of the 1930s, citing Mises' study in particular. In only two weeks of being made available, the book and its arguments went from being invisible to being part of the circulating body of ideas that animate public debate. This experience illustrates the point very nicely that those who cling to copyright as a way of denying people knowledge are just wrong. The same events repeated themselves with Mises' book, Bureaucracy. Here is a book that offers a tremendously revealing analytical framework for understanding the public sector. Mises explains why government is inefficient, why it never seems to have enough money, why budget cuts seem arbitrary, and why there is no real way to know whether government is doing anything socially valuable or not. His analysis applies whether the bureaucrats in question are public-spirited or not. It is a very powerful work, and yet it has long been obscured by the public choice school's insights on the public sector which, however valid, are not as foundational as Mises. In any case, the book no longer lives in obscurity. It can again be part of the living debate of our times. Why isn't the case for making these texts available more obvious? Part of the error at work here is having an unnecessarily restricted view of the potential market for these books. If you believe that they are bought only by a small group of libertarians or musesians whom you have known from the various conferences in the past, or you believe that the number of musesians will always be restricted to a tiny remnant, 
You might believe that you must configure offerings in a way that somehow traps these people into purchasing the product. But when you realize that the market for libertarian Misesian books has been vastly underestimated and artificially restricted due to technological considerations, it is easy to see that an online text does great good on its own as an educational tool. The market for Misesian theory, delivered via whatever means one can conjure up, is not fixed, but rather potentially enormous. It is just a matter of getting the word out. We are hard at work doing this on other Mises texts as well, and putting up as many books as we can manage on a daily and weekly basis. Ludwig von Mises, Marianne Rothbard, Frank Fetter, Fritz Machlup, Frank Chodorov, George Reisman, Hans Hermann Hoppe, David Gordon, among many others. When possible, we like to offer full text and a searchable and copyable PDF, which means more than just pumping the text through a scanner. Of course, time and resources constrain us, making a searchable PDF not a snap. A quality HTML driven by a database takes even more time and money to pay for server space. In any case... We try to make texts available whether the book was published yesterday or whether it is long out of print and insofar as rights holders cooperate. This strategy makes sense to us both in terms of our educational obligations as well as our fiduciary responsibilities, doing good and doing well, or at least not going broke tomorrow. As with all exchanges undertaken on a voluntary basis, everyone wins. Chapter 28, Mises.org in the Context of Publishing History, October 26, 2009 This speech was given on October 24, 2009, at the Birthplace of Economic Theory Conference in Salamanca, Spain. Stand-up comedian Louis C.K. has a routine called, Everything's Amazing, Nobody's Happy. The gag has people on an airplane sitting on comfy chairs and flying through clouds. They are complaining that the wireless connection is too slow. There is a truth here. Capitalism has made everything amazing. And yet, everyone these days seems to hate capitalism. Let's leave aside the problem that it takes economic understanding to see cause and effect— There is a more general tendency to take whatever material goods surround us as something granted by fate, our own personal state of nature, and a human right that is ours by a grant of justice. We fail to see our current wealth for what it is, a historical contingency that came about through the sweat and toil of generations that preceded us. Its permanence is presumed. The goods are ours to redistribute by force if necessary. The services and the tools they require belong not to individuals but to all, so they can be taxed at will. Nothing can harm them or reduce their number. I fear that the same is true with publishing. For only 500 years a book's been copied by machines, after several millennia in which handwork was the only way to spread the written word. For only 150 years have books been made available to all classes of society. Every innovation in publishing has meant greater distribution at ever lower prices, culminating in today's print-on-demand methods and universal access. 
digital methods have set the written word free as never before. Kids today ask their parents, were you born before the internet? They are vaguely aware that there was life before the web, but they conglomerate it with the days before automobiles and running water. There's something to this. The advent of digital media has meant a complete revolution in publishing, which makes Johannes Gutenberg's movable type appear as a mere stage of progress. And yet, do we appreciate what this means for us? I don't think we do, not fully. And I worry that, failing to appreciate this, liberals in the Misesian tradition will not fully comprehend what it means to push the literature of our tradition into digital form. If we could understand this meaning, we would be far more optimistic about the future, provided only that we believe in the power of ideas. So I would like to take a step back and have a look at the role of digital media in the history of publication generally. Looking at the sweep of publishing history, the goal of all innovation has been the same. Lower the cost, widen distribution, make the result permanent. There is no success for anyone who attempts to resist these three motivating forces. There were sometimes trade-offs between goals. For example, the early scribes chose parchment over papyrus. Papyrus was less expensive, but parchment was seen as more durable, and therefore the scribe's work would be preserved. The work of a scribe was largely unchanged from the beginning of recorded history to the middle of the 15th century. The scribe in a monastery such as Salamanca would work every day for up to eight hours, breaking for psalm singing and mass, and working with a whole team of other specialists in graphics and ink to produce perhaps one book per year. Until this point in history, it might have been easy to believe that the book and all that it represents fell within the economic classification of a scarce good. This is to say that by its nature... A book cannot satisfy existing demand, must be rationed by price, and is radically finite, capable of being duplicated only with time and sweat. It might have been easy to conflate the work that went into making the book, the physical properties of the book, with the message and the signs in the book itself. In fact, these are really two different things, and all of the progress since has worked to delineate the difference between what is scarce by its nature, paper, binding, time, versus what is potentially capable of infinite duplication, the ideas and formulations in the book itself. It was out of the institution of the scribe that the invention of printing came, not all at once, but over the hundreds of years preceding movable type, using leather and woodcuts and a variety of other techniques. The innovations began in monasteries, but with commercial printing came the most remarkable thing of all, a phenomenon that took books out of their scarce state toward their potential of being a completely non-scarce good. That phenomenon is known as the mechanized copy. We can understand this by reference to the parable of the loaves and fishes. An apostle attending a sermon by Jesus had brought only enough food for himself. When the crowd became hungry, Jesus was able to copy his lunch infinitely and feed the entire multitude. The Gospels are careful to add that there was still more left over at the end. This is precisely what printing made possible. 
The work on the ideas and the preparation of the first manuscript required time and labor on a scale few of us can ever imagine today. But once the tools for printing were in place, an approximate copy of the original could be made. Aside from paper and machines, there was nothing that limited the number of copies that could be made. The text itself was a non-scarce thing. To realize the unlimited potential of print became the dream of anyone with an idea to spread, whether it was in philosophy, music, law, or theology. When movable type printing appeared with the Mainz Psalter in 1457, it seemed that the institution of the scribe would be no more, and monks all over Europe debated what to do. On the one hand, the religious communities had the strongest interest in printing advances. On the other hand, the class of professional scribes associated with monasteries, of course, opposed the advance in order to protect the high status of their specialized services. After the development of printing, and then movable type, German abbot Johannes Trithemius exhorted his monks to continue to copy books. He claimed that printing had a shorter life, and that the automated printing technique denied monks the discipline associated with hand scribing. He worried, too, that the monks would have idle hands if printing became more fashionable. But this concern didn't last longer than a few decades. By the late 15th century, the printing houses were working almost exclusively for monasteries, and monasteries themselves had established printing houses. Far from having taken away work from the monks, it became obvious that the new tool made their work more efficient. Their work could be made ever more valuable. The works of Trithemius himself, on a variety of topics, would eventually be printed in many editions. Movable type made possible an unprecedented explosion in literary work. Michael Clapham says in his three-volume work on the history of printing technology, A man born in 1453, the year of the fall of Constantinople, could look back on his 50th year on a lifetime in which about 8 million books had been printed, more perhaps than all the scribes of Europe had produced since Constantine founded his city in AD 336. Other experts suggest that Gutenberg's commercial innovations led to an increase in book production by a factor of a thousand. About 115 books are attributed to the early movable-type printers. About 30,000 editions are attributed to the latter half of the 15th century. This increase is astonishing by the standards of the time, but it is a blip on the screen in ours. After all, looking at Mises.org data, we can estimate to have sent some 100 million editions of our articles and books flying around the world. And keep in mind that this measures only the work of our servers and doesn't include the thousands of servers around the world that host versions of our content. Since we are in Spain, I would like to say a few words about the printing entrepreneurs from this country's 16th century. Their role in pushing history forward is not noted often enough. Lambert Palmart, 1440-1493, was the first printer in Spain. He worked from Valencia, the headquarters of commerce. He printed some 15 books in his career, which was an incredible accomplishment, the first in 1475. In Saragossa, there was also Matthew of Flanders, who printed four additional books. Seville was the third most prominent city for the expansion of printing in Spain. 
Here lived Antonio Martinez, Alonso de Puerto, and Bartolome Segura, all of whom printed throughout the 1480s. Tortosa was home to what became a vibrant and organized printing firm, which printed fully 28 books by 1500. Burgos was host to the firm of Frederick of Basel, who was in business with Michael Wenzler, and they made 35 books. Another addition to the list of Spanish printing heroes is Arnaldo Guelen de Bocar, one of the so-called wandering printers who set up shop in Logorno, Alcala, and Valladolid. He, like others, printed many Bibles and theological works. Finally, our list would not be complete without mention of John and Jacob Kornberger, who set up shop in Seville with some partners and local workers and eventually came to print some 239 books of theology, law, medicine, and music. It was this firm that printed missionary tracts in Spanish to be sent to the New World and Mexico in particular. They did even more than that. In 1539, they put together a full printing outfit and sent it directly to Mexico, where it printed eight books. This was the first printing press to appear in the New World. So on behalf of the New World... I say thank you to Spain, not only for the economic thought that made free enterprise thrive in the Western Hemisphere, but also for the first printing press to ever come to our shores. For anyone in love with free markets, the 16th and 17th centuries was a time to witness that wonderful beauty of ordered production. New capital combined with new skills to bring the world more of what it needed and wanted. The rush into the book market by printers of all shapes and sizes and in all countries of Europe was a wonderful thing to behold. But there was a threat on the horizon. Mercantilism, the theory that producers needed special protection by government in order to remain healthy in an atmosphere of extreme competitive pressure. Producers were beginning to discover then what every business knows today. Namely, that one aspect of free enterprise is that it denies long-run profits to producers. The market process is always driving profits to zero, as profitable companies are imitated by innovative upstarts using cheaper and more efficient methods. Society benefits from this process, but in order for an established firm to stay on top, it can never stop innovating and striving for excellence. The answer to this reality in many trades was to seek government protection from competition abroad and to ask favors from the prince to be the only and favored producer. This served both as a guarantee that people would continue to be provided with the goods and services they needed and as a guarantee that the producer would be protected against the distractions of competitive pressure from others. That's the theory and practice of mercantilism and it's a perfect recipe for hobbling progress. Just as printers had driven the scribes out of business, the printers were facing extreme competition by the 18th century. They sought protection from efficient upstarts, often called pirates, who were making life hard for this very profitable industry. These pirate firms were publishing older works and distributing them very cheaply and widely. The dominant firms claimed that this practice was undermining their ability to fund new works and was thus inhibiting innovation. The established printers tapped into the mercantilist spirit, but with a special twist. 
they claimed that words on the page constituted a special form of property. When they were copied by a firm other than the current publisher, they claimed their property rights were being invaded. Their intellectual property was being stolen. Now, on its face, this is a preposterous claim. Once ideas are known by others, they are copied. They cannot be owned in the conventional sense. Another way of putting this is that the ownership of the ideas becomes multiplied without end. The only way to possess an idea as exclusive property is to never share it with another person. Once shared, the idea takes flight. What's more, the entire industry had been born in the world of copying, not in making original work. Most famously, the most profitable text to publish was the Bible itself and its most ancient transcriptions and translations. In fact, this had been the driving motivation of the invention of the press in the beginning, just as it had been the driving motivation of the scribes. For this reason, it is crucial to understand the appearance of copyright as nothing other than an aspect of the mercantilist principle. The claims about intellectual property were nothing but a ruse offered up by printers as a way of seeking legal protection from competition. On the continent, no one bought into this gibberish, seeing it for exactly what it was, a sop to producers, which would have inhibited the whole engine of publishing from the ancient world to the present. They saw that copyright does the opposite of the long-established goals. It raises costs, it limits distribution, and it dooms works to a short life, given the uncertainties of the industry. This was a terrible direction to go, and at only one place in the world did it take hold, England, which was undergoing a terrible religious struggle. Copyright became useful to the crown in order to suppress works incompatible with the official religion, whatever it happened to be at the time. And so, in the 18th century, there were endless fights in England over this matter. Meanwhile, on the continent, publishing remained competitive and free for the hundred years after the first copyright statute was imposed on England. Even given England's laws, copyright statutes were largely ineffective at hobbling the market process until the imposition of international copyright law in the late 19th century. Laws have grown tighter and tighter in the 20th century until we have reached the point of absurdity since 1995 in the United States, with laws that have pretty well doomed a half-century of scholarship to ruin. If you leave the state and state-protected industries in charge long enough, they will strangle progress to the point that civilization completely stagnates. In the publishing industry, digital media couldn't have come at a better time. It is saving what the state and dominant publishers are trying to kill. The digital and web media are to the establishment what the printers were to the scribes and what pamphleteers were to the established bookmakers. Digital media threatens what they believe to be the core of their existence right now, namely the restriction of what should be completely free, and the imposition of scarcities on what really should be non-scarce. Let us return now to the three principles that drive progress in publishing. Low costs, wide distribution, permanent results. The web has achieved all three in the most spectacular way. The marginal cost of downloads is approaching zero. The access is approaching universal. The capacity for copying is infinite. 
and the results are everlasting. As you know, the Mises Institute is furiously posting as many works in the Austro-liberal tradition as we can scan, and we are working at a pace and with a discipline that is on the order of the older scribes. Our entire literature archive is completely open source, meaning that anyone in the world is free to simultaneously host our results. These editions are like fire. A spark can create a roaring blaze stretching hundreds of miles. This is the power of digital media. It has achieved the dream of every publishing innovation in all of human history. When a new edition goes up on Mises.org, even before it is publicly linked, it is sent out via torrent to servers worldwide and immediately achieves immortality. It is archived on the site and thus available to researchers and students all over the world. We have thousands of works available and the number grows daily. We are limited right now by copyright restrictions, but these are being chipped away steadily, and we push the envelope as far as we can. One of the works that has been copied for hundreds of years, both before and after the printing press, was the Etymologiae by the 7th century Spanish Archbishop St. Isidore of Seville. The book summarized all knowledge up to the time it was written, including that of the ancient philosophers, and it somehow still had great notoriety in the 15th century. Many of the Spanish printers of the 15th and 16th century busily printed Isidore of Seville's work. He not only was a brilliant intellectual, he had a passion for two great tasks, the preservation of knowledge through writing and the spreading of knowledge through copying and distribution. It is for this reason that St. Isidore was proposed as a patron saint of the Internet. I think, too, of Mises himself, who labored for six years between 1934 and 1940 to write Human Action, only to have it published in German in Geneva and have it vanish down the memory hole in the midst of ghastly war and global upheaval. He emigrated to the United States, where he started over again with an English translation, which was published in 1949 after much internal debate at Yale University Press. After we became conscious of the power of the web, Human Action was our first giant project. Now we have it out in EPUB format, in which it can be downloaded an infinite number of times and fly around the planet at the speed of light. Seventy years ago, this work had a very unpromising start. It is now immortal. May we someday say the same of human liberty itself. With Mises.org and its supporters around the world, I do think that day will eventually come. Chapter 29. The Myth of the Cell Phone Addiction. June 17, 2005. Pundits and bloggers are addicted to decrying the supposed cell phone addiction of Americans. Calls for government to do something about it can't be far behind, especially considering the other claims that cell phones give us tumors, gut our memories, and jackhammer our brains. There are even reports of secondhand damage from others' cell phone use. These articles go beyond merely claiming that cell phones are annoying, and truly people could learn some manners here, as in many other aspects of life. As regards this supposed addiction, this is a word attached to any habitual behaviors of others we do not like. What's interesting here are those who offer something like a Marxian-style critique of cell phone use. 
We are alienated from society, we are told, and obviously tormented by loneliness, and thereby seek solidarity and community. But rather than seek out our genuine connection to others, we reach for technology, the very thing that alienated us to begin with. We grow ever more dependent on our gizmos, but they ultimately disappoint because they only cause addiction to machines and thereby increase alienation. Also, we the oppressed long for empowerment and the ego boost generated by the sense of importance granted by the idea of receiving and sending cell phone calls. We can't stop using our cell phones, and yet they only further entangle us into an artificial world of machines created via the money matrix. Oh, just look at the cell phone people everywhere. Surely this is the final stage of capitalism in which we ignore our brothers and sisters walking next to us, but instead talk through electronic means to some distant party. And talk about what? About nothing. It's like so cool to be on the phone. You can make this sort of critique up about anything. Pepper the essay with references to Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and, to stay in good with the conservatives, the insufferable T.S. Eliot. Finish it off with a hymn to primitivism. Even a wish to return to the Garden of Eden without the taint of technological sin, and you have a winning piece of commentary. It's all nonsense. There is plenty wrong with this genre of criticism, as Tibor McCann points out. He found someone who regretted the invention of the mirror. But let us address the cell phone in particular, because many people seem to have bought into the idea that it represents some sort of grave danger to the culture in an ominous sign of something or other. Of course, property owners are free to ban them or not. Burger King wouldn't, but a five-star restaurant probably would. Whatever is profitable. Private property owners solve whatever problems arise, but these are not any different from other problems of what dress, speech, and behavior is right for the time and place. Certainly there is no reason to ban cell phones on flights, as the FCC is considering. Leave it up to enterprise itself to decide. The critics, however, are not satisfied. They say cell phone addiction is a broader concern. To be sure, it's easy to defend the cell phone on grounds of its emergency services. With cell phones, people have never felt more safe and secure when driving or being out and about in potentially dangerous places. The critics will concede that. What drives them nuts is casual use, the whole middle-class casual culture of the cell phone, which seems to them wholly disgusting. And yet, it is its casual use of technology that makes its emergency use even more economically viable. It is the demand for gab that has driven up the number of providers, driven down the prices, and made amazing technologies available to all, which then provides the spillover benefit of making the emergency use of the same technology affordable and ubiquitous. A market of emergency-only cell service would not have become the mass phenomenon that it is today. The appearance of addiction reflects a change in the use of public space made possible by new technology that was born into the marketplace only in 1994. Ten years ago, talking on the phone was a behavior that was tied to place, namely the home or the workstation. Or there was the now anachronistic phone booth. 
In retrospect, it is obvious that a vast amount of productivity was being wasted by the requirement that we be strapped to a chair or a room in our homes or in a glass booth in order to keep up with work duties, friends, and family. Suddenly, and almost like magic, that changed. The cell phone made it possible to speak to anyone, anywhere, from any place. Think of it. What a dramatic transformation. For the first time in the history of everything, anyone can have direct personal contact with anyone anytime. No more hiding out in the home, whiling away the hours with friends or at the office, which used to be all about the phone but which is now all about email and instant messaging. Professional and personal uses of phone calls can take place anywhere. We can Bluetooth our way through all informal life settings and get the most out of every minute. Not only that, it seems obvious in retrospect that audio communications are an individual and not a community affair. When the telephone first came along, you had to walk to the post office or town market to use it. What a pain! Then there were lines shared by several houses. How tedious! Then there was one phone per household, owned and maintained by the government. Police! The ability to completely privatize audible communication has been possessed by the private sector since at least 1947, but the government hogged too much of the radio spectrum to make it possible. It wasn't until 1994 that the government deigned to provide private enterprise what it needed to create a revolution in communication. For this reason, it is useful to think of the cell phone as a freedom technology along the lines of the World Wide Web. Both were developed by the private sector for the private sector. Both represent institutional revolts against the state's presumption to own and control the command posts of society. Cells in the web are the mode and means of liberation that the state will forever resent. But back to the supposed addiction we all have. We are only making the best use of our time. What better time to talk on the phone than when other tasks are prohibited to us? You can turn driving into a multitasked operation. Same with walking to and from places. So too with shopping at the mall. These are the very times to pull out the cell phone, not as an addiction, but as a means of making the most productive use of a period of time. It is simply a matter of economizing. That is, directing resources toward their highest valued use. But because our eyes see something new, something we haven't been socialized to expect, and because the market is expanding and democratizing so rapidly, it creates the illusion of something having gone oddly wrong. Instead of seeking to understand it, the temptation is to reach into pop culture's bag of ideological bromides and decry it as some sort of pathology. The oddity of public phone use first dawned on the academic class several years ago when they would walk through campus and see throngs of students yammering away on the phone. Cell phone addiction! Can these kids unplug themselves even for a minute to enjoy the scenery or talk to real people? Why should they be so interested in their pathetic little materialistic existence even after all the assigned readings from Veblen, Marx, and Derrida? We need to realize something. 
These kids are walking to and from classes in which they must sit and listen and take notes for an hour or two. They are headed to another class where they will do the same. Or they might be headed to a library study session. Or they might be headed to the pool to meet friends. In any of these cases, a phone call is not possible or desirable. But traveling from one spot to another? Shopping? Driving? It's just the time to call, even if only to leave a message. Now, you might respond that these kids are not actually saying anything useful. They are engaged in conversational junk, punctuated by grunts of nothing. Well, productivity is a subjective concept. Meeting social obligations, making another person feel connected, letting someone know you care, these are all productive activities as understood by the individual speaking. Who are we to say what constitutes valuable or valueless conversations? The pundit class has a penchant for judging the culture of freedom harshly. If, ten years ago, these same critics had walked up and down the block peering into people's windows, they might have spied people on the phone in every home. They might have decried this as phone addiction, but nobody would have taken them seriously. In fact, the response would have been readily at hand. Mind your own business, bud, and get a life. Actually, that's not a bad response to most everything that comes out of the carping class of intellectuals who try to make us feel guilty and oppressed for using products that improve our lot in life. Modern technology has us all talking to each other again. That can't be a bad thing. Chapter 30. Another Central Plan Fails. December 31st, 2002. For the last two decades, the conservative wing of education experts has touted one magic bullet, apart from vouchers, high-stakes testing. The idea is to subject students, and teachers too, to a standardized test that would create incentives to learn the basics, compel curriculum committees to toss out the fluff, yield reliable data for assessing performance, and inspire students and teachers to keep their noses to the grindstone. In state after state for the last ten years, these tests have become the leading avenue for education reform. The trend began in Texas and spread. Now millions of students begin their first day of class with a profound awareness of the impending make-or-break tests to be taken at regular intervals from the first to the twelfth grade. On the face of it, it seemed to work. Curriculum committees threw up their arms in despair. Teachers started teaching math and stopped teaching so much fluff. And everyone had a sudden sense of accountability. A conservative victory? The Bush administration thinks so. Which is why it is working toward the supposed dream of a national testing system. New data, officials say, can be generated that allow for a comparison between states, build proof of success, and otherwise allow for a better national system of education. The No Child Left Behind legislation uses carrot and sticks to impose high-stakes testing on states that do not currently use the system. While the plan seems sound on the face of it, the reformers forgot one thing. We are dealing with public school, which lacks any real means of operating in a sound economic, which is to say resourceful and rational, manner. Think of it this way. 
Let's say that Soviet grain production had been down for three years straight, and some clique came up with the idea that the workers and managers needed clearer rules for daily operations. The plan might look good on paper, but in the end, it doesn't address the underlying problem: the fact of central planning itself. Central planning has several universal features. It is coercive. It bypasses the needs of the consumers for the sake of politics. It relies on edicts which may or may not reflect reality. It does not take advantage of the price system, profit or loss. It is impervious to change. It ignores local conditions. It does not permit flexibility according to circumstance. It robs those who know the most of the ability to make decisions and innovate. It creates incentives to obey the plan, but diverts attention from the real goal, whatever it may be, and it may be the wrong goal. It ends up overutilizing material resources, underutilizing human ones, and not generating the intended results. All of these features have doomed the testing movement, at least if you take seriously the results of a new study from Arizona State University. Http colon slash slash www dot asu dot edu slash educ slash epsl slash capital e capital p capital r capital u slash epru underscore two thousand two underscore research underscore writing dot htm. The first to examine the issue nationally. The researchers have found an inverse relationship between the ability to pass the tests and the scores on independent assessment tools like the SAT and ACT. The latter come up with a measure of the student's mastery of the ability to think and solve problems. The school exams, on the other hand, only measure whether students have mastered material on the tests, which are not thought-based but curriculum-based. It turns out that even as students have shown consistent improvement on state tests, the opposite is true with regard to performance on outside tests. After adopting these exams, twice as many states slipped against the national average on the SAT and ACT as gained on it. This turns out to be true across the board, even on math scores, with the exception of middle school math. And the trend on advanced placement tests was also worse in states that had adopted tests. What's the story? Well, the tests themselves have become the curriculum. That's all that teachers focus on, and they do so at the expense of teaching valuable learning and thinking skills. The one goal of passing the tests has replaced the goal of producing good thinkers, students, learners. The students are being trained narrowly. The school tests measure that, but not broadly, as shown by SAT ACT data. And hence, the whole point of education is being lost. Just as striking, the study also found an increase in dropout rates. In fact, it is likely that the study underestimates dropout rates because it relies exclusively on reported data, while most everyone agrees that there are more dropouts than are typically reported. Now, the conservative response to this bit of news might be good. If a student isn't there to learn, better he leave the classroom and cease to hold back those who want to learn. And in some ways, that's a valid point here. Yet, I think back to the story once told to me by former Soviet economist Yuri Maltsev.
When the Soviet government became alarmed at the high death rate in hospitals, an edict was issued from Moscow that gave a quota on the number of people who could die under official care. The result was hospitals hurling people on their deathbeds out the front door and down the steps to die. They complied with the plan, but missed the larger point. Something similar may be happening with the high dropout rates. Teachers and administrators are probably encouraging failing students to leave school rather than drag down the aggregate numbers. One public school teacher revealed to me her tactic for dealing with the mandatory 90% pass rate. When she enters a class of 30, she identifies the three students she can ignore and otherwise write off as obvious failures. Now, this is not a cruel woman, just a person who knows what's necessary to survive in the new environment. She said all her colleagues do the same. So, while the results seem at first counterintuitive, how can testing lead to lower scores and more failures? When you think about it, the results make perfect sense. Students are being run through the cruelest gauntlet of narrow examinations produced by the politicians, while teachers are robbed of the ability to deal with the students as individual learners. This system might appear fine for the average student, but the data can be deceptive. High end and low end learners are being neglected, and those who ostensibly benefit are only given the tools necessary to master exams. How do conservatives respond? They first point out that a lead researcher in the study, David Berliner, is a critic of school vouchers. In that the study was underwritten by an affiliate of the National Education Association, which opposes do or die tests. In other words, they are saying the people opposing this central plan are partisans of another central plan. Granted, but what about the substance of the results? Chester Finn, an education official under Reagan, had this to say to the New York Times You almost never have a pure cause and effect relationship. Yes, you're introducing high stakes tests, but maybe you're also changing the way you license teachers, or extending the school day, or changing textbooks. There's always a lot of things going on concurrently, so you really cannot peg everything on the high stakes tests. Aside from observing that his critique applies to all social science research, which always and everywhere involves human volition and infinite variables, Finn's argument misses the point. The case for the tests was in part driven by the desire to be able to measure results in precisely the way the Arizona study is done. If you live by the data sword, you have to be willing to die by it, too, and it is hard to argue against the reality that the new data has produced some very deep cuts. Most compelling about the study is how it comports with anecdotal evidence. Teachers and students these days are obsessed with the tests, way beyond anything that anyone over the age of 30 knows anything about. The basics reading, writing, math, science are hammered home like never before. Preparation for tests has become the sum total of all public school education. Advanced students are bored out of their minds, while weak students are relentlessly frustrated. Teachers wonder why they spent so much time learning how to teach when all they end up doing is drilling for exams. 
This new system is unsustainable, especially now that it turns out that the results produce the opposite of what it intended. Now, this is not to say that the alternative of left liberal education policies with no tests and no focus on basics or accountability is the answer. The problem with education is more fundamental. It is run according to a central plan, so it has all the classic failures of central planning, including vast expense, vast waste of material and human resources, and results that are always disappointing. The whole subject of education and the institutions that support it needs to be rethought, away from the still surviving Deweyite progressivist model and toward the ancient tradition of private tutoring now being revived in home schools across America. All schools can learn from the experience of home schools, with their attention to individual needs, the flexibility that allows students to develop in unique ways, their privately run and funded character, their employment of localized knowledge and resources. These are the elements that make for good institutions of all sorts, whether it is commercial businesses, charities, civic institutions, or schools. In short, the answer is not to adopt yet another central plan. It is to disempower the planners altogether and restore decision-making power back to the parents, the teachers they employ, and the students. Testing and better data will not save education in America. A wholesale repudiation of all educational centralized planning will. Chapter 31 Department of Computer Security? It's a joke. January 20th, 2006. If you want to make a geek laugh derisively, suggest that responsibility for computer security be turned over to the government. This reaction is guaranteed, regardless of ideology. Everyone knows that this is not possible, but rarely are the implications for political economy noted. Now, keep in mind that geeks know that producing fabulous-looking and acting things for the web is only part of the job. These are people who spend fantastic amounts of time dealing with security issues, which change every season, day, hour, and even minute. People know about viruses. Spyware and adware, meanwhile, are incredible threats to people's home computers. A new computer can be slowed to a crawl in a few days of quick browsing without good security against hijackings, and a huge industry has sprung up promising solutions, some good and some almost as dangerous as the thing they allegedly stop. Some of these are free, and some quite expensive, and the typical geek must work to discover what's what. Other threats are less well-known, such as the possibility that your own computer can be hijacked and controlled by other people who want to use it to store files or scan for other hijackable ports. This is mainly a threat faced by servers running large websites, huge magnets for hijackings and hacks, but it even affects home computers. For example... I was recently talking to a technical administrator of a prestigious host of thousands of servers. He was amazed by the number of root-level compromises that have been taking place in recent months. The possible holes in people's systems are without limit. Software must be constantly upgraded. Even one small mistake can lead to data loss and disaster. He tried a little experiment. 
He installed a new operating system on a new laptop and disabled the firewall. He then hooked it up to a non-secure wireless network in an urban area. The first attack came within six minutes. In 12 minutes, the computer had already been hacked and was under the control of somebody or something else. All data on the computer was rendered vulnerable, available for looting or selling. In a few minutes more, it would have become a workstation for more port scanning, denial-of-service attacks, or some other menacing behavior, and been added to the empire of servers being controlled by some of the world's smartest criminal minds. Not that a good firewall and secure connection are infallible solutions. There is always a way in for someone with high-level skills and the will to take the risk. To keep threats away involves the technical equivalent of street fights between hackers and security professionals. The fighters have similar skills. It's just that one group wears the black hats and one wears white hats. Some are criminals. Some are saviors. The battle never stops. And yes, some of them change hats depending on their career prospects. The fight involves deploying skills that are far beyond what most any normal person could conceive of possessing. They can run circles around most computer science professors and even run-of-the-mill webmasters. Some will rant and rave against the security holes and proprietary products such as those offered by Microsoft, and users of Internet Explorer would be likely to agree. The thing hasn't been properly updated in many years. It has not kept pace with the times and so attracts web-based evil like a landfill attracts flies. Other products, however, are different. Server-level software is constantly monitored for holes, with updates sent out automatically and often, though not always as often as people might like. Still, open-source advocates say that this proprietary stuff is expensive and dangerous. The companies don't respond soon enough to threats, and no one but company employees can view the underlying code. That means that improvements come more slowly. With open source, the world community of programmers have access and work constantly to improve the product. To be sure, hackers too have access to the same code, so here too you have a battle between good and evil. Among the good guys, there is a debate. Should software holes be announced publicly, full disclosure, in the hope that the firm that works on open source will fix it before the hackers find out? But between the announcement and the fix, there is a gap that hackers can exploit. Perhaps, then, the hole should only be revealed to the firm or individuals who manage the open source product, limited disclosure. The downside here is that the people responsible will lack the frantic sense of urgency that generates the quick, hot fix. Geeks thrive in emergencies, while non-emergencies fail to inspire. So the debate over security rages furiously. Open source or proprietary code, public security announcements or quiet revelations, development or risk. At any one time, all solutions are being used, with bulletin boards filling up thousands and thousands of pages of debate based on experience. Ideology can play a part here, but in the end, it comes down to what works best. And all the while, the war continues, pushed onward by the relentless pace of development and progress toward better living standards.
We haven't even touched on the war between the virus makers and the virus killers. The competition here is also intense. When a new virus is unleashed, the first firm to produce the fix wins the new level of consumer devotion and attention. A nothing company can become the next big thing by producing a fix for two or three viruses in a row and doing it before the established firms get there. An established firm can lose its market edge in a month by failing to update its virus definitions in time. The difference between winners and losers in this struggle comes down to minutes, not days or weeks. In this never-ending struggle, there are always trade-offs between the pace of development and its security risks. No software is perfect; they all have bugs. But people demand development. The market never rests. We must all take some risk. How much is acceptable? Competition prevails here too. A bad choice in favor of security over development can leave a company eating other companies' dust. A bad choice in favor of development over security can lead to bankruptcy in the face of high-stakes security compromise. Geek personalities reflect this trade-off. Some develop on live servers and deploy every beta the hour it appears, while others test and test and prefer only the tried and true. All these fascinating details aside, keep in mind that the terrain on which these wars rage is wholly market-based. The idea that any public bureaucracy could oversee the process is unthinkable. So let us ask the question again, so that the reader may join in the derisive laughter. In a world populated by black hats, should the government be the sole wearer of the white hat? Actually. Is there any point at all in giving a white hat to the state? It has no incentive to join the struggle. It lacks the calculational means to assess the trade-off between security and development. It lacks the entrepreneurial drive to produce either. The nature of the bureaucratic organization is to stay put, protect itself, and only move when kicked good and hard by political bosses. As for the power to do good, how can anyone guarantee that it won't quickly become the power to do evil? If experience is our guide, the government in a position of authority is more likely to be creating viruses and spyware rather than stopping them. As for the impact of the law, I vaguely seem to recall some legislation passed a few years ago that made spam illegal. Government can't produce software that can outsmart every hacker. Not now, not ever. But the government can violate liberty and waste vast resources in the attempt. As important as computers have become, there are interesting implications here. On a day-by-day basis, the security of these machines is a far bigger matter than the threat of terrorism. Whether we like it or not, and regardless of ideology. We all depend on market competition to bring us not only innovation but also to protect us in our dealings with information technology. It is not a perfect solution; it can be messy and fallible, but the market is the strongest and best hope for security, and the alternative is unthinkable. How interesting that we have been told for oh some four hundred years that government is the agency we need to give us the security that markets cannot give us. There are a thousand rationales why intellectuals have believed this, 
but none of them seem very robust by comparison to the experience of our times.